Hey everybody, welcome to Rogue Hunting Resources Podcast. Alright, here we are, another Sunday night. Um, yeah, what a weekend. I hope you guys had a great weekend. Got some stuff done. I did some... Uh, I got some stuff that done that needed to be done, but man, it wasn't stuff that I wanted to do at this moment. Does that even make sense? Yes. Um, my equipment, I'm, I'm frantically trying to get caught up with all of my habitat stuff that we want to do this year talked about in the past that you know the the challenges we've got windy windy weather and the drought and everything so you you adjust and you make them plans and you, you adjust your seed mixes and you and plus what we're going to talk to, about today about the uh, turkey decline here in northwest kansas so we're going to change some of our management protocol to hopefully address some of the things we're going to touch on tonight but anyway so you make all these changes you get all these things planned out and then you finally get some weather that you can rock and roll and get some stuff done and then your equipment craps out on you so i literally have all my my ranger my atv they're both in uh my buddy's shop he's trying to figure out what the heck's going on i think the atv is a fuel pump i've kind of known that that was going to be going for a while but We've been limping it along, nursing along. Well, of course, you remember when you were in college? For the, it, high school probably is the same thing to these days. When I was going to high school, we didn't have a whole bunch of computers. It wasn't computers really didn't become a functional thing that we were really actively using until we got into college. But yeah, I know I'm that old. Uh, but you know, you, you've got a paper due, you've got an essay, you've got so, you got some work that you got to get done, and you, you procrastinate, 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 and you finally get motivated to do it. You get ready to print, and then what, what happens? Your printer just craps out. Um, hell, even if well, I guess today maybe you guys don't even print stuff out, but regardless, that's what always used to happen to me in school. I'd, either something would crash or the printer would crash. It's, uh, it's always at the worst possible moment. Well, the same thing happens here. So right when we're, I'm just, just scrambling to get stuff done. Sure, yeah, sure, here we go. ATV fuel pump goes out. That's expensive as sin right now. Supply chain stuff makes it hard to find. We, I can get them if I want to spend 500 bucks on a fuel pump. And Anyway, Ranger craps out, starts overheating to where it won't, you know, if anybody is used to you know using one of the newer rangers as soon as it starts to get too hot the automatic kill switch just just kills the engine you can't go anywhere until that engine cools down well the problem is is mine it'll cool down I, you, you saw the the post that i um or the picture i posted me cleaning out the radiator yeah it was the radiator to the ranger i i have sprayed out and blown out and washed out that radiator numerous times but finally i was like it's got to be blocked to where it's just not breathing that's why it's overheating so i literally took last saturday what was it last saturday i don't remember what it was um was it last saturday good lord days just go by they just all blend together i've said that before too you guys that have a 95 monday through friday you guys are blessed because you can kind of actually keep track of days for the for those of us that work for ourselves, and it doesn't matter what day it is. It just it people ask you what day is it. Does it matter? No. Do I wake up and have to get stuff done? Yeah, I just go to work. It doesn't. I don't care if it's a Monday, a Tuesday, a Thursday, a Saturday. It's irrelevant. 
all I look at is what the weather's going to do and can I function outside. So anyway, I ended up pulling the radiator out of the whole dang thing, tore the tore the front end apart so I could pull the radiator out. And I spent, I don't remember, it was like five or six hours with it, with seriously, with a little pick, a little tiny pick in the vacuum. And I cleaned that radiator out fin by fin by fin, straightened up fins. I mean, I that radiator might be, might as well almost be brand new by this, you know, juncture. And I thought, golden we're good to go this thing ain't gonna overheat now it'll be just like brand new you know and no drove back up so one of the places i'm working on with or one of the guys i'm working for and working with on some habitat stuff is an hour and a half away drive all the way back out there and get going and and luckily i mean i was able to get a bunch of stuff done and get a bunch of stuff prepped but sure enough here we go again it starts overheating and does not want to work and I'm hoping it's just a uh, temperature sensor, but who knows when that's going to get fixed. He's so slammed. He's still trying to figure out, make sure that's what it is because nothing's making sense. Everything looks good, except it just doesn't want to work. So here I am. Perfect weekend to get some stuff done. I should have some... I've got some spraying I need to do. I should be drilled. I should have already had a bunch of food plots drilled already, but no, 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 no. Of course not. So here I am now because it's getting so late. I mean, literally, we're here we are towards the end of May. Um, I'm making some adjustments to our food plot blend. I'll talk about it more in a, in a future discussion, but um, having to retool some of what I'm going to plant just based on timing, uh, moisture, impending temperature and heat that's coming here. Um, yeah, it's just just frustrating. So anyway, one of the things that I needed to do is on the, our horse properties just got a bunch of old crap elm uh, or uh yeah chinese elms or just crap trees that the drought has decided to weed some of them out um and so this winter i kept talking about i need to run the chainsaw get the chainsaw out and, and cut out a bunch of trees and you know i've got neighbors that use the firewood and friends here in town and did i do it no I prioritized everything else, and so here we have those windstorms come, and it just blew a bunch of the trees down, and so I've got trees in places where I don't need trees down, and I can't access some things, so I was like, well, if I can't do anything anyway, because my equipment's in the shop, literally, well, grab the chainsaw and let's go, and and I don't know, it, it struck me. It struck me the other day. Let's real quick. Let's just talk. We're going to talk about turkeys. We're going to talk about turkey decline. But I've, I need to. I need to segue real quick here. Let's think about antlers for a second, can we? Because I started to think about this. I mean, think about antlers. What is it about? What What is it about antlers? I know that the vast majority of us, and some people, it's horns, you know, sheep, whatever. But antlers. Antlers just like transcend everybody. And you can pay, take your pick. Elk antlers, mule deer antlers, white tail antlers. It doesn't matter. Antlers. Just something about antlers that just, they're just magical. We we just, we're fascinated by them. We, we just, we love looking at them. We love touching them. We love collecting them. We love, you know, holding them. We love, we just, we just, we're, we're drawn to them, right? I mean, there's just something about antlers that are, I don't know. Of all the other accoutrements on, you know, wildlife and and all the things out in the out in the environment, 
antlers just, they're just more special, right? So I'm running the chainsaw and it hit me. Are, are chainsaws the antlers of the tool world? Like seriously, I think about all the tools that I use and I'd have in my garage, in my base, the house and all that stuff. There's just something about grabbing a chainsaw with a fresh chain, just sharp, saws running clean, and just going out and just running the saw and doing work. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I can't think of another tool that gives me the same. There's something about it when I'm like, I need to go grab the chainsaw. There, it's a complete. It's not like ah crap. No, that's the that's that's usually what it is. I need to go grab the circular saw. Ah eh, crap! I need to go grab the circular saw. Hold on a minute. I'll go grab it. And I'll get it out and blah blah blah. blah. Or. I need the chop saw. I grab the chop saw so I can get, I can cut this or cut that, or I need the Dremel or I need the drill. All right, there's just there's there's not when when it when the when the tax task shows up to where it's like I need to grab the chainsaw. There's like this little tiny late, just this little this little like one watt bulb in the back of you just it just lights up and you're like I'm going to go grab that chainsaw. I'm going to run the chainsaw. And I don't I don't know what it is. There's something about it chains just I I don't know. I don't know what it is. I really do. I think chainsaws are the antlers of the tool world. There's a lot of different tools out there. Just like there's all all sorts of other accoutrements to to wildlife and critters out there. But something about antlers just draws us in, and we're just fascinated by it. And we just can't get enough of. It. I th- and I, I, I look at my chainsaw and all my tools, and I say this. I, I look at it the same way. I'm like, ooh, come here, baby. It, it didn't matter if I was a kid. Doesn't matter if I'm, I'm, I'm now. It just, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I literally work for two days running a saw and hauling. I mean, oh, I'm sore. Oh, use I mean, that's the thing is I, I hate working out. So doing labor like this is probably what I need to do more of just because I, I, if, if I'm, I enjoy doing that type of stuff and getting physically tired and working muscles that I should have been working all along. But regardless, I spent two days hacking down trees, cutting up down trees, moving treetops and cutting firewood chunks and, oh. I want to get back in the ranger and start drilling some food plots. But anyway, it was a fun weekend. I got, I got stuff done that I needed to get done. I should, that I've procrastinated on, but it is what it is. So yeah. Um, one more other little housekeeping thing before we, we dive in here. So yeah, we're, we're getting about, we're about two weeks out on that elk seminar. So if you guys that are in the Missouri, Eastern Kansas, uh, Western Missouri area, if you want to sit down and have a fun evening, just just talking about some different stuff and and going through some ideas on uh, elk related topics on preseason, you know, preparation, your efforts that you're doing now, 
and why you might not be seeing it translate into increased success in the field in the fall. Even if it's not, you know, you're, some people equate success as, you know, a dead animal on the ground. I, there's a lot of factors that they come into why you might or might not have an animal on the ground. However, are you seeing an increased number of interactions? Are you calling in more animals? Are you seeing more animals? Uh, are you getting into more animals? That type of, once you've, once you've cracked that code, it's just a matter of time before you, you put one on the ground. Oftentimes the biggest issue is finding an animal and getting an, finding the animals, number one, and number two, then getting those animals to, to play with you and, and actually want to come in on your set and, and giving you a shot opportunity. Um, there are a, a handful of things that I talked about at the Denver ISE show about why I think some of us might be defeated before we even start. Uh, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. What we do in the off season is great, and we did the, the, the diligent work, and we did what needed to be done, and we set ourselves up in a great situation only to go out in the field, and as soon as we walk into the, uh, into the mountains, the valleys, the timber, wherever, we, we basically we screw ourselves right right before we even start it. So that's what we're going to talk about at Overton's Archery Center in Lawrence uh, on June 4th. We're going to kick it off, I think, about 7 p.m. I'll be there a couple hours or oh, several, several hours early if you just want to come and and uh, just sit and talk and visit. And, you know, we can talk about whatever the heck you want. I don't care. Um, but we're going to kick off the, the formal one at about 7 o'clock. Hopefully we have a good turnout. Um, yeah, come on out. We'll kick off this summer's elk stuff. Uh, June 4th, Overton's Archery Center, Lawrence, Kansas, which is on the east side of, of Kansas. is over. It's over towards Kansas City, Kansas. So you guys in western Missouri, eastern Kansas, and, and the surrounding areas around there, yeah, stop in. Um, you can either get a hold of me through private message, direct message on Instagram, or email me if you want, or just get a hold of John Overton, uh, the owner of Overton's Archery Center, and he'll have the details there. This is also, again, like I mentioned before, it's going to be a joint uh, promotion. You know, uh, the Elk Foundation. I, I really do like the guys over there that are involved with the Elk Foundation. They do a good job. Um, it's going to be a little bit lower key this year, obviously. Well, I guess not obviously, but for probably obvious reasons. Man, the economy, it, it just sucks. The costs are, of everything is going through the roof. Fuel sucks. Um, these guys are going to be nice enough to help cover some costs for me uh, getting out there. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it just so it is what it is. I mean, the, the costs these days are ridiculous. I think anybody that's out in the real world and working and, and um, seeing what's going on knows that it, it, it's it's getting a little bit crazy out there. So it's going to be a little bit more of a low-key promotion from the Elk Foundation standpoint, but that's all right. They, these guys are, are advertising it, putting it, getting the word out. Um, they always do a great job, so I appreciate working with those guys. And, um, yeah, so we will see you out there on June 4th, 7 p.m., and we will kick off some elk discussions uh, maybe get you guys lined up, guys and gals lined up in a better spot to where when you guys do hit the field this year, uh, you're not shooting, you're inadvertently shooting yourselves in the foot. So that's coming up. All right. So let's talk about, let's let, okay. So this, I've teased this enough and I've talked about it. I've, I've, you know, 
yeah, I, I, I social media on, on Instagram, I've, I've shared my thoughts on some things. Past podcasts, I've mentioned I was going to dive into it, and I've... The num- I'm still having conversations with all of you, and I appreciate it. So keep them coming. We'll we'll have these conversations. And I I sent out that um, earlier about if you had some questions. Some of the questions that came in are are literally we're gonna we're going to cover that those questions in this discussion. So I, I don't need to to you know call those out specifically. We'll we'll, we'll touch on them. There was a couple other ones. Um, let me touch on uh, one right now about. You know, the question was about avian flu, uh, bird flu, and whether or not that's an issue. You know, I don't know. I have not heard anyone out our way talking about it. Now, that's not to say that we would. Um, there are many, many, many things that I like the state of Kansas for. Um, and there are several things that I wish they would do better on. Um, I've said in the past, in my opinion, I don't think um, Kansas is as proactive on certain things that I would like to see them proactive on. In the name, you know, namely in regard with especially game management and production of game. Um, so. With that being said, I don't know if if Kansas would actually even come out and, you know, publicly say anything if there was a bird flu issue going on. Uh, to me, honestly, I don't know if there is. I um I, I don't know. I I have my I am skeptical if there is, because I think we have a bunch of other things going on that uh, are are more likely to be the cause of our decline. And I, I think it's going to be, and, I, and I, I hope you'll see here, that I think it's more along the line of a death of by a thousand cuts. It's, it's not just one thing. It's just the cumulative effect of several things heaping themselves, you know, just basically piling on the issue. Um, what was the other one? Sorry, I just blanked it. Oh, 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 Jonathan. Yeah, cutting. Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on this. So, so Jonathan Sneed. Um, cutting will send turkeys away from you in northwest Kansas. How can you determine if cutting is the right call to use on birds? Um, yes, it is in the turkey mod. I, I do talk a little bit about that in the turkey module on the website. But um, in general, you just got to play with it and see. Just judge. Any, like anything. Like, I don't care if we're talking about cutting with, with turkeys or whether we're talking about bugling strategies or cow calling. It does, you're, you're, all you can do is go into a situation and think, okay, this is what I think I need to do here based on what I know about behavior, what I know about this. You know, when we're talking turkeys now, we're talking about what time of year it is, what, what period in the breeding cycle are they in, how many hens are in that group. Uh, are the hens starting to spread out and bust themselves up? Are you know what what's going on in the in the flock dynamic, and then what responses are you getting out of that flock when you're calling? Are the gobblers gobbling to you? Are the hens responding back? All you can do is is test it. I I don't mind. There, there's a lot of people that you know. Listen, if you're not familiar with your birds in your area, 
you do your do the normal stuff. Start off at what I would say your yelps and clucks and everything else and purrs and everything. And if you feel like you need to bump it up and get a little bit more aggressive, then go ahead and you know dabble into and try cutting a little bit and see what your response is. If they if they respond to it, okay, we'll keep giving them what they want to hear. I mean, if they if they like it, go for it. I'm just telling you in my area because of the flock dynamics and the bird dynamics that we have out here, oftentimes, no. You very rarely, if ever, will hear a hen cutting out in my neck of the woods. And so, and and most of the time when I hear hunters just dive in on cutting, that the, they just go silent. They just, they just go the other way. And what the issue is, it's not that those people decided to try a calling sequence that was a little bit more aggressive. That That's what you do. You test the waters, you throw something out there, you know, the whole proverbial, you throw the pasta at the wall and see what sticks, right? You, you, you got to throw something out there and test it. The issue is, there's a lot of people that want to throw stuff at the wall to see what sticks, but no one pays attention to what actually sticks. You just keep hucking stuff at the wall. Well, no. The the point is for you, it's you're supposed to be evaluating what you're doing, evaluating what the birds are doing and how the birds are responding, or the elk or whatever. How are they responding? Are they responding favorably or not? If they're not, don't double down on it. Not necessarily, not not it, 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 not to start anyway. If you're on the last afternoon of your last day and you've got nothing else and you've got to try to make you know, the whole proverbial make something happen. Okay, maybe, maybe you keep ramping it up. I don't know. But most of the time, what I'm going to tell you is go ahead and try something, but listen, watch, evaluate. If all of a sudden you've had a conversation going back and forth and those hens are responding to you, the gobbler's responding to you, they're just not coming to you. And all of a sudden you you decide, all right, I'm going to step it up and I'm going to pop, 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 and start into cutting and they just flat go silent uh maybe evaluate maybe evaluate and that's what i see a lot of times is people will go to that aggressive right off the right off the bat because it just sounds sexy. Everybody wants that aggressive calling strategy, for it seems, because it just sounds and looks and it just feels sexy. And so everybody just wants to jump into it, and then they find out that, oh, it's not working as efficiently as what they were hoping for, so they just double down and keep pushing it. And then the birds just, whoop, there they go walking away, because that's just not what these birds out here do. Most of the time, because, again, remember, cutting is aggressive. It, it's... It, you are being very demanding in your vocalization saying either I want you to respond to me, I want you to come to me, you know, get where are you, you know, out in my landscape, it's so freaking open that if there was an actual hen that was that incessant to, you know, you might hear one, you know, aggressive clucking, you know, okay, that's fine. But when they start getting into that just just nasty going on cutting, in my neck of the woods, seriously, all a turkey needs to do is step out into the field and look and be like, what the hell's going on? And usually they have line of sight. Usually it doesn't take them much to, to move a very short distance and then have line of sight in, in wide open areas. So they really don't need, in my opinion, 
I think part of the reason why we don't see or hear some of that real aggressive calling and that just vocal, just absolute vocal uh, engagement that you do see in other places, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> like for instance, uh, Jay Scott just got back, uh, Jay Scott Jay Scott Outdoors just got back from his Gould's Turkey Hunts, uh, gouldsturkeyhunt.com. Um, yeah, he's got great footage. Uh, Gould, that was one of the things that I loved going down there. It's just the amount of calling and the amount of just vocalizations that you hear down there is insane. And I think the habitat lends itself to that very, very well. And then for whatever reason, it doesn't, I don't know. I'd like to talk to Jay about this a little bit more about the you know predation down there. And, and I've got some ideas and we're going to touch on some of those ideas about what the level of predators are down there. But uh, it just seems that they just don't care. They're, they're a large-bodied bird that seemingly has a low level of predation risk. And they're in habitats that are broken, brushy, shrubby, uh, that you don't have a lot of line of sight in some areas. And, and I think it just lends itself to where they want to see, they want to hear, uh, and they talk more. And so... All vocalizations are on the table down there. You can hear everything. It's, it's it's awesome. Out my way, yelps. Yelps are the key, man. And I talk about that in the turkey module. The two, the low and slow, and that high, you know, the more of the high pitched, fast paced strings of yelps. And if you can perfect your yelps, get some good clucks in there. Get some good purrs in there every now and then when you need it. Um, and quite honestly, I've actually had more success using a gobbler shaker out here than I have with cutting, but they just, they just don't seem to want to do that out here. And as soon as you do it, it's like a red flag and they just flat shut up and just go the other way. They're just not that interested. So anyway, for what it's worth, if you, it's not saying don't try tactics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, I always talk about start low build up there. I will always call as much as I need to, but never more, any more than I have to, right? So start at the basics, build up. If that's not working and you feel like you need to ramp it up, then go ahead and try. But when you ramp up, you need to be evaluating every step that you go. And once you get, once you start crossing over into those aggressive strategies, if you're not getting the response that you're, you know, it's not building and that animal's not responding favorably, I am of the opinion, my style is I back off. I get, I, I just stay with the fundamentals. Okay. So with that being said, Let's finally dive into this discussion, and and I'm gonna, you know, I I thought about doing it in like multi parts, but I you know I really don't know how far down in the weeds, no pun intended, we we really need to get on some of the details because I think a lot of you guys and gals get it. it. And here's let me let me set the stage, okay? Because I'm gonna I'm I very clearly qualified this and said this is for my area, this is what I'm observing in my area of Northwest Kansas. So what does that look like? I am managing grounds in, in ground on the west side. Well, I've got, I'm helping other people from south, you know, southeast of Osborne all the way into southwestern Nebraska. Uh, but the bulk of the stuff that I manage right here is western Phillips County, eastern Norton County in northwest Kansas, 
and the habitats that are like that across the region. I do a little bit in Rooks County, do a little bit in Graham County. So it's a kind of a four-county area, all right? But this, what I'm going to talk about for our area may or may not translate to where you are. And this is the thing that is very, very... People do not... I just ran into this just again lately. People don't appreciate, especially when we're on these fringe edges of of habitat. If you think about how the landscape looks from, let's just use that, Missouri, Kansas border, eastern Nebraska, Iowa, you know, you, you look at look at that habitat and the the landscape that's over there. And then let's just go all the way to like the front range of Colorado. All right, we're all you know Denver and Longmont, Loveland, Fort Collins, you know, Colorado Springs, all, you know. If you go from Missouri and you hit the Colorado border, you're driving west on I-70 or you're driving west on I-80 and you roll into Wyoming and start getting over towards Cheyenne and then you start rolling towards, yeah, well, especially Cheyenne. Uh, They aren't the same. It doesn't look the same. The, The vegetation isn't the same. The terrain isn't the same. And for damn sure, the moisture cycle isn't even remotely the same. All right? And so while you might be in Denver or Kansas City or Boise or wherever you're listening to, if you might be in an urban area or if you're in your back east, you might be in an area where you go 30 miles and it's all the same. It's all the same. You, you go 30 miles north-south on I-25 in Colorado, and it's just an urban environment. It's an urban-suburban environment. You're going to have some farms. You're going to have some fields in there. Yeah, but it's just, it's it's largely one and the same. But when you get into this transition area where we are in the Western Plains, where you're leaving those areas of good moisture where you get a lot of rainfall. And we're getting into these areas where you have very, very minimal rainfall. 30 miles is night and day. Like it is, it can be drastically different. Soil structures, completely different. Moisture cycle, how much moisture you get, completely different. When you get your moisture completely different. How you get that moisture completely different. What your winter looks like versus your summer all, temperature regimes, humidity, wind, all those environmental factors wildly different. I've said it and I know that people that have not experienced it, not lived it, do not truly internalize it and find and and understand the value of that wisdom until they've actually had to function in it. But again, I've shared this before, the one of the landowners I work with, he's like me, he's he's been all over the place, uh worked in, you know, 
educating people and and from his standpoint from agriculture and he said you know when he was in banking and finance and, and doing financial stuff you could travel all over the country and all over the world and talk about finance talk about banking and be a consultant and be a guest speaker and, and get flown into all over all sorts of other places and quite honestly back when I was on the Primos pro staff that was one of the things that I learned uh, that one of the um, was it Dean Reagan now we're going back, aren't we? Some of you remember Dean. If Dean, if you're out there, if you listen to this, I hope you're I hope you're doing all right. Um, I don't remember if it was Dean or not. But anyway, it was the farther away from farther away you are from home, the more of an expert you are. The more of a draw that you get, the more ooh ah people get. They're like, oh man, this guy's from a long, you know, far away coming to talk to us about elk calling or turkey calling or waterfowl or predator calling or deer call, whatever. And it was just this fascinating thing. But everyone around your own hometown, they know you. They don't, they're not going to come to a seminar you're going to give. They're like, who's that jackass? I I went to school with him. He doesn't know anything more than me. So, man, and you're not, you're no one around home, but you go away from home a ways and now all of a sudden you're this ooh-ah thing. That is not how agriculture works. You you go and, and talk to somebody in a different environment, man. The farther away you go from home, the less specifics you better be talking about because there's so much nuance there that you quickly travel yourself out of your comfort zone, out of your knowledge base. So what is going on here may not be what's going on where you are seeing your decreases in turkeys. Everybody's seeing the same thing. Almost almost everybody. And and I say almost because there are a handful of people who are like, "Oh my gosh, we got birds everywhere, blah blah blah." Okay, then then you this is one of those rare moments where you look and you soak in every drop of it. You soak in every ounce of your experience because you might be very very well living in your own good old days right now. So soak it up. Because I remember hunting out here when we were in the quote unquote good old days 10 years ago. Five, hell, five years ago was better than what it is now. But even, especially 10 years ago, uh, it was, that's why I came to, that's why I was coming to Kansas. That's, I mean, it was, it was, it was awesome. It was magical. Same thing with Nebraska. What? That ship has sailed. We're, we're not in that same environment anymore. And so if you are dealing, if you're hunting in an area where your turkey population is strong, and it's thriving, and and you're out there whacking the pit, you're having birds stumbling over your decoys, and you're whacking the piss out of multiple birds every season, man, soak it in, because the rest of us out in the country, it sucks, because we know what it was a few years back, and several years back, and maybe 10 years back, and we're not even in this, we're not even in the same universe right now, okay? So, for those of you, yeah, so I'm going to just leave that, soak it in, appreciate it and then pay attention to what we're going to talk about because you very well may be riding high right now but you're already peaked you're already crested and your population what's going on in your area is already is changing to where maybe you are at the start of your slow decline i pray that 10 years from now you're not sitting there going man i remember what other people were saying 
and now we're in it. Man, I hope that doesn't I hope that doesn't case or that isn't the case. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope you guys just continue to just crank and, and produce more birds and um have the, have just the hellacious time of your life out there each spring uh turkey hunting. But so not everything that I'm going to talk about is going to translate, all right, to your particular area. Because I really do believe and I've talked so many of you we we've we've sat and we've talked. I and I, I'm not going to uh, it is what it is. I truly believe it. It's a death by a thousand cuts. I think we've got multiple things going on. And I think it's the cumulative effect of certain things. So for me, I'm going to go through what I'm seeing here in our environments. You just take what you see in your area and see if there are similarities. Maybe it's not going to translate directly, but maybe there's some similarities there. Maybe... <coughs> maybe some things, excuse me, <coughs> maybe some things are wildly different So and they just don't flat out pertain. Other things you might be like, hmm, okay, well, that's not exactly the case. However, similarly, we've got X, Y, and Z and it translates, okay? So just pay attention and just see what fits for you, what doesn't fit for you and just Start paying attention to your landscapes and trends over the years and not just trends in the turkeys, but, okay, what's going on in the landscape? What's going on with the weather? What's going on with your winters? What's going on with your summers? What's going on with temperature? What's going on with moisture? What's going on with ag rotations, crop rotations? What are farmers doing? How are they doing it? Why are they doing it? What are the cattlemen doing? Are, are there cattle in the area? What All those things play into this puzzle for what we're dealing with out here. Um, and I, and I, I suspect it's going to do the same for you. All right. So first and foremost, the big thing that you get, that everybody needs to listen or keep in mind out here, think about Western. If you've never been through Western Kansas, okay, we are not in habitats that look like Eastern Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana. No. No, we are large. Imagine your dining room table and just stretch your hand out in the middle of the table and open your hand, your fingers up and just plop that in the middle of the table. That That's kind of, you've got this massive open landscapes of prairies, you know, pasture ground, ag ground, and then these riparian corridors. Some of them are river corridors. And in some places of those river corridors, there might be a large cover um, corridor that's associated with it. Trees and grass and shrubs and that type of stuff. And it might be a wide section of, of this river corridor that has you know, vegetative habitat cover to it. Other little riparian corridors and, and river corridors it's extremely narrow. Like, like it's crop field, pasture. You'll, you'll have 20 yards of trees and then the creek just, just cuts right in. I mean, the steep, the banks are steep. It's incised. It cuts right down. It, that, that, that stream, that creek, that little river might stay the bulk of the year, maybe ankle deep, maybe knee deep other than flooding. And then it's five to 10 yards wide 
and then you're up the other side. You got maybe a 10-yard strip, 20-yard strip, and uh, cover, and then you're back into you're back into ag. You're back into pasture ground. Okay, so these very narrow, long, linear corridors of cover. From there, as you branch out away from those creek bottoms, those river corridors, the actual places where there's water, you get into some of these places where what a lot of folks out here call waste ground. Um, so maybe it's just ground that, you know, you've got shale that is, you know, shale, which is kind of a, it's a soft rock. Um, you know, it's softer than, you know, sandstone. It's softer than limestone, but it's, it's similar to those. It's a sedimentary formation, but, um, it hard ground, nothing really wants to grow in. It's very shallow soils. And so every now and then the shale will just kind of daylight and it'll get rough ground and, and it doesn't produce a lot of grass and you might have some, you know, you'll have some plum thickets out there and maybe some, uh, skunk, you know, or the oak leaf sumac or, you know, snowberry or something like that. But you'll have some shrubs out there, but it's just what they call quote unquote waste ground where, yeah, they'll probably, if, if it is part of, if there's pasture around it, um, they'll just graze it with everything else. But if there's farm ground around it, well, they'll, they'll farm around it. And so they'll just, the, the ag field will flow around these pockets of what's called waste ground. And, and they call it waste ground because it's really good for not a lot of anything. You can't grow crops on it. It doesn't produce a lot of grass for cattle. Um, it just, it is what it is. It's just part of the landscape. All right. Now, keep in mind, so that you got those three designations. And I, and I really do classify the three designations. Ag, agriculture ground, tillable ag, ag fields that are, are farmed year in and year out or year, year for grain production, or cattle feed, okay? But there's there's a, a tractor and a planter or a drill going through planting seed and there's something coming behind it in the summer and fall harvesting whatever was planted, okay? That's tillable ag, ag ground. Then you have the, your rangelands, your pasture ground. That is the, that, the grasslands, the, the rolling hills, prairie that's oftentimes out here, buffalo grass. We've got some blue grandma. You'll have some western wheat, um, and we're going to talk about some of the other stuff that's coming in on it, but generally speaking, you have blue, you know, and that's the thing is we are in that transition period or area where, you know, west of here, you start getting into that short grass prairie species more. If you go east of us, you start getting into that tall, the more of the tall grass prairie. It starts going mid grass and then tall grass prairie, where you have your big blue stems, your your switch grasses, your Indian grass, your little blue stems, that type of stuff. We have obviously we do have those here, but we're in that transition area where we're going to have some of those taller species and we're going to have some of those shorter species as well. And then the third one is what I said about that, the waste ground, that that ground that just turned into stuff that just really wasn't uh, usable. Now, sometimes that waste ground and some of those creek bottoms, um, you go back 100 years ago, someone tried to, to break those out and till them up and farm them. Or someone decided to go in and put cattle in places at higher stocking density than maybe what it should have been. They really beat them up and, and, or, you know, farming, it just wasn't working out. And so it's just never going to work. So they reclaimed it. And in a lot of areas, especially when we started getting into the situation where you had soil erosion problems, 
you will find a lot of areas in these waste ground areas, these little long linear corridor areas where it's just dominated by smooth brome. That was planted. And in a lot of these areas, it was planted because it was planted as, A, it's going to get good. It's going to create a massive sod layer. So it's going to hold soil. Even in the face of flooding or periodic flood, you know, flash flooding and, and uh, flooding from storms and that type of stuff. So it's going to hold soil. It's a cool season grass. It's a good good sod farmer. And and there you go. It's a, it's a good grass for cattle. So, And it could take a pounding. All right. So a lot of this waste ground areas were actually formerly disturbed areas where pioneers wanted to try to make something work on the landscape. They just chose poorly and, and the, the ground was not going to yield what they wanted it to yield. And so they had to put it back into something so it wasn't just going to blow around or, or wash down in the river bottom. So it was planted and reclaimed into brome. Um, you might even have some side oats grandma in some of these areas, but a lot of brome, a lot of brome. Brome, smooth brome is an increaser species it's going to it's a sod farmer and it will increase over time along that land, across the landscape so you you look at a, over the course of 100 years or whatever that's a lot of time for that brome to to fill in and dominate some of these areas um and really to the exclusion of a lot of other native species that might be better for wildlife as far as food and or cover. Smooth brome really does nothing for wildlife. Um, but anyway, so those are the things. You got ag ground, you have the pasture ground, and then you have this quote-unquote waste ground. And again, waste ground in a lot of areas is um, dominated in the understory. The grass is, is dominated by brome. So let's start, and I'm gonna, I, I, I kind of gave myself an outline. I'm going to start with what I think the biggest changes have been. And I don't know this to be true, but my suspicion is that this first thing led to the next thing, which then led to the next thing, which then ends up where, you know, it just, it, one thing led to the or one thing either led to the next or exacerbated the next to where it just started like a snowball rolling downhill it just started picking up momentum and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger until finally turkeys were standing in the way and they just got leveled all right so the big thing for us out here because of you you know you go back 10 years ago what we had for our weather systems and our moisture cycle and temperatures and all that type of stuff 10 years ago is not what we have today uh, now granted i'm not we can talk about climate change all you want obviously we have some legitimate changes in our climate and that is as far as i'll go with that discussion um yes was there hot days you know 10 years ago sure there were i'm i i've got a video um, where I'm sitting in a ground blind the first week of April, and it's legitimately, it's winded out of the south, cranking, probably 30 mile an hour wind out of the south. It's legitimately 100 degrees. I'm sitting in the ground blind in my underwear. I'm, I'm like stripped off. I've got nothing on except my underwear. I'm just sweating my balls off in there. Um, and then I whack it, you know, call that turkey in and whack him in the head. So, yeah, it was hot. 
But one thing that we definitely had a lot of back then was we did seem seem to have a lot better moisture cycle going on, uh, especially in the spring. Because when we first started hunting here, when I started running the hunts for the landowners out here, there were several cases where I remember the spring in April where the winter wheat is well over my knees and we're wearing rain gear. We're wearing knee-high boots, our rubber boots, like we would during deer season with rain gear pants because it just it's just cold. It's just wet. It's just, I, The fact that the landowners, the, the farmers were spraying uh, fungicide on their winter wheat crops to keep the fungus out because it was too wet. All right. So we're not having that. We, for the last several years, we have not had that issue. Now we've had some good springs. We've had good moisture in these, you know, like last spring, we actually had really good moisture, but then it just winked out in, in previous years, we'd have good spring moisture. And then we would also get those monsoon flow in July, August, and September. And then we would get some snowstorms mixed in along the way. But we would get some good late summer rains, but we would get our good spring rains. Well, now it's we're kind of getting to the point where it's either or and maybe not either one of them, okay? Well, out here, because of the gen... Okay, we're in, in my area, we're generally sitting around that 20 to 24 inches of annual moisture, precipitation, total across the entire year, all forms of moisture, about 20 to, well, 18 to 24 maybe, depending on where you are on the landscape. But 18 to 24 inches is what we what we deal with. So some of you that are dealing, you know, back east, you, uh, 18 to 20 inches, that would be brutal drought for you guys. Some of, some of you, your drought years would be our good years as far as our moisture goes. Okay, you guys get way more moisture than we do. All right. Especially in and then same thing north north of here, especially northeast of here. So because of that, this country used to be wheat country. When we look from an ag standpoint, it was winter wheat. Winter wheat was king. Corn and soybean were mixed in there supplementally to diversify income to change crop rotations so you could change your herbicide regimen so that way you could stay ahead of the weeds. But when I first started uh, with my landowners, well, the the, the, the landowner that, that originally approached me, his um, crop rotation every year was wheat, wheat, corn, soybean. Wheat, wheat, corn, soybean. So two years out of four, it was going to be wheat. And then there was one year of corn and then one year of soybean. Next year, back into wheat. Next year, back into wheat. Next year, back into corn. Next year, back into soybean. Next two years, back into wheat. And we're talking on a broad scale across thousands of acres and a lot of acres that were tucked up against these riparian corridors and river corridors, etc. and waste ground areas, etc. So, and it wasn't just my landowner. Everybody was like that. And quite honestly, there were, a, and still to this day, there are some farmers. You know, we have an aging population of farmers across this country. 
um, not just my area, but in my area, we've got a, a bunch of different farmers that are either have retired or now in a, you know, assisted living home or whatever to where, you know, they didn't have the money to expand. They didn't have the money to buy the new tractors and, and buy the new planters and be able to take advantage of some of the, you know, different grain markets and that type of stuff to where they had a wheat drill and they had a combine that they, you know, and so that's all they did. They just planted winter wheat because it was it was easy, it was stable, it was the equipment that they had, and very little input requirement for winter wheat. And you know you can plant it in the fall; it does its thing. You you harvest it end of June, beginning of July, and there you go. Get ready for the next next go. So this used to be wheat country, and like in the last one, you know the last podcast i i discussed about the cover that winter wheat provides but when you look at winter wheat all right again remember your dining room table with your hand stretched out across the middle of it with your hand you know your hand and arm stretched out all of that surrounding landscape in the past you've got this little narrow linear corridor which is your hand and, and your arm but everything around it uh was a mosaic of different and this is the other one too. I forgot about crop insurance, but you know, I can touch on that a little bit. But <clears throat> on that dining room table, there may have been, you know, if we're talking about several square miles or a number, you know, like many square miles, you might have had two or three landowners in there. Each landowner was doing their own thing. Each landowner had different fields in those in that area. So there was this patchwork mosaic of different crop fields. Not everybody was synchronized on the same crop rotation. So while my landowner had wheat, wheat, corn, soybean, someone else might be wheat, 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 and then uh, maybe I'll do soybeans or you know wheat, wheat, milo, something else, or maybe they were you know three out of five was wheat and the other two were milo or a cane sorghum or there's just a variety of different. Maybe it was corn. Maybe it was um, uh, the hell did I just yeah anyway. Not all the landowners were on the same cycle. And so all of the different fields that the different landowners owned ended up looking like different puzzle pieces on the broad landscape. And depending on the moisture, depending on the crop, uh, commodities and all that type of you know speculation on what, what the price was going to be, you might have a landowner that had, was growing... In that region, a landowner was growing two different crops or three different crops. Well, the other landowner was growing two or three different crops. The other landowner and the other landowner and the other landowner all were growing two or three or whatever different crops. So there was massive diversity in agriculture on the landscape. And that diversity of agriculture was buttoned up right next to some of these corridors and these waste ground areas the reason why that's important is because that means that there's food on the landscape 365 days a year there's a bunch of winter wheat on the landscape why is winter wheat important winter wheat is generally planted mid-september maybe you can all the i mean heck you can plant it into october and and i mean yeah well into october if you want to but generally speaking 
after about the 15th of September is when you start rolling in and a lot of a lot of farmers will start planting their winter wheat you know September 20th or whatever that winter wheat is planted hopefully you got some good fall you got the late summer rains you got some good September rains you got some good moisture pulse coming in there bam that winter wheat pops all those wheat kernels pop the winter wheat starts coming in that new growth highly palatable highly digestible high in protein when i first started doing the winter wheat and started testing stuff i sent a sample of our winter wheat in in the fall sent a sample well actually late fall into the early winter i sent a sample of our i just did vegetative clipping of our winter wheat sent it in for forage analysis it came back with 31 percent protein all right so the veg, the early new vegetative growth of winter wheat is highly nutritious, highly palatable, highly digestible for deer and turkeys. Okay, so everything loves it. I, that's why I, for me, for out here with our habitat stuff, winter wheat is king, man. Winter wheat is king because everything loves it. Everything benefits from it. Everything knows what it is, and everything they'll they'll walk across other habitats just go right straight to winter wheat. And if you know that and you know how to play it, especially temperature cycles and, and uh, weather pit, weather systems coming through, you know that you can stage yourself on the correct field at the correct time and, and capitalize. I'm looking at my whitetail, my last big whitetail that I killed uh, a couple years back now, uh, right near Christmas. It was like 72 degrees and I was like, I'm, head, I'm, I'm, I'm headed straight to winter wheat and every deer in that entire river bottom piled just piled out into our field because we had the best we had the only winter wheat and it was awesome looking winter wheat and yeah they just piled out and and these bucks that i thought were dead um somehow miraculously survived the outfitter and and the rifle hunts and everything else around us and he walks to i don't know 17 yards and well he's on my wall now so winter wheat is king man um and back then, because there was this mosaic, you'd have a lot of winter wheat on the on the landscape. Planted in September, grows September into October and start until it starts getting cold and starts getting too cold for that plant to continue growing. And then the, basically the plant goes dormant. It'll stay green. It stays palatable. It stays nutritious. It holds all its good goodness right there for everything to eat and nibble on all winter long. And then as spring rolls around, the days start warming up. The soil starts warming up again. We start getting some more moisture. The plant wakes back up. Okay, now there's some things called vernalization where if once the you know the plant gets to freeze, that freezing cycle stimulates the plant to throw up more tillers, just more you know branch out and get bushier and you know bunchier. And then it just starts. It just it's just like gangbusters from there on out. It, it's growing well like a proverbial weed it, it grows exceptionally fast well and it will i mean heck there's there's times i've walked out across winter wheat fields and i mean hell it's at it's at my armpits okay you know you heard the you know the the well yeah how many of us heard of amber waves of grain you know yes um just beautiful deep lush thick stands of wheat when you have adequate moisture well until that plant starts getting too much lignin and too much uh fibrous material in it 
Um, deer, turkeys, especially in the early spring, pound the piss out of it because it's high in protein and it's highly digestible. Well, what is an egg made out of? Well, there's a hell of a lot of protein in an egg, right? Hens need to have a high protein diet in order to be able to produce eggs uh, efficiently. And so turkeys flock, literally and figuratively, to those winter wheat areas. Well, winter wheat areas were all over the landscape. All right. Now, again, like I said, though, back in the day, it was a mosaic. So somewhere within a couple mile radius. Now, remember, and I talk about this on the website with Rio Grande turkeys, they will absolutely get in these massive flocks and they will move miles, plus or minus, you know, up and down the river bottom and the corridors. I mean, many, many miles, many miles away from their summering and summering grounds and where their wintering grounds are are completely different. All right. So within that corridor, within many miles, they're going to stumble upon, back in the day, stumble upon those cornfields, the milo, sorghum fields, uh, the soybean fields. All right. And they're going to find that winter grain. There was going to be winter grain around there because at that time, again, and we can talk about a little bit more about this here in a minute. We were talking about efficiency of equipment and machinery. You'd you'd have really good spillage from a, not from a production standpoint. You don't want spillage and waste on your when you're trying to harvest harvest your field. Your combines throwing corn out the back end of the combine, laying on the ground. That's not good for your for your bank note, but it's darn good for wildlife. So. And back in the day, most people were having to harvest corn at a drier rate. And we're going to talk about this here in a minute. But So you had to let corn stand and dry out enough. Well, the longer it stands, the longer it takes to dry out, the more likely you're going to have stuff falling on the ground, storms knocking stuff over. Or when you start to harvest it, you get stuff falling out the back of your combine, right? So there's more food on the landscape for wildlife. But winter weed was the driver. And I, I, my opinion, I really do believe winter wheat was their driver because they would always, there was always enough, there was always corn around. There was always milo or sorghum stubble around where turkeys, and let's just focus on the turkeys. Okay. We can have a separate discussion about deer, but I'm, I'll, I'll pepper in some deer stuff here too, but focusing on turkeys, they're always going to find that winter grain and they're going to find winter food. And, and heck, at that time you, you still had CRP. You had native grass areas, and, and heck, if it's a good, mature CRP and it was good and productive, there's a lot of native grass seed uh, that's out there in those CRP fields. So the turkeys had winter food. The issue was that good protein in the spring. And then I really truly believe it was the growth form that winter wheat provides that was providing the bulk, my opinion, the bulk of good nesting cover for a lot of these hens. Because I remember vividly when we first started turkey hunting, and I mentioned this earlier in my Instagram post, um, we would run our hunts in April, and I would shut them down in May because there was nothing going on in May. The, the gobblers were already bachelor group back up, 
and they didn't, they couldn't care less about a hen yelp or, I mean, basically you just had to pattern them with binoculars, figure out where they were going consistently on a routine basis, and then just get in front of them and sluice them. Just shoot, just, just wait in ambush and just sluice them. And that's not the style of hunt that I enjoy. So that's not the style of hunt that we provide with row hunting resources. I, I My hunts are calling, decoying, that type of hunts, okay? And at the time, reaping wasn't even, it was just kind of getting starting, start, started, okay? So I didn't do those type of hunts. So I shut down my May hunts because at the end of April, by mid-April, in the later part of April, you would see the turkeys out in the winter wheat field. And all you would see is like, like a couple inches below where the bear head and their, you know, on their neck where their feathers meet the bear part of their, their head, you'd only see a couple inches below that. I mean, you just see their heads and then all of a sudden, whoop, they just duck down and they disappear. And then all of a sudden, a few minutes later, periscope head pop up. The winter wheat was that thick, that deep. And so the hens would go out there. Again, remember, your native corridor is that skinny little strip. That native corridor oftentimes was dominated, is dominated by smooth brome in the understory. Smooth brome does not provide a lot of cover, does not provide a lot of good food, right? You go up into some of these waste ground areas, some of these, these rough country where you've got the plum thickets and the, the, all the other different shrubs and that type of stuff. And you start getting into your switchgrass and Indian grass and blue stem and all that type of stuff. Okay, you, you can get into some good pockets of cover up there. Sure, pockets small pockets but across the large landscape you got thousands thousands of acres of winter wheat at these hen turkeys disposal to just wade out into and just vanish and pick a nesting spot again i cannot tell you the number of turkey nests i've come across in just my winter wheat food plots let alone some of the big big ag fields all right the beautiful thing about that was, again, like I talked about before, and, we'll, it will, and there's been enough biologists out there talking about raccoons and how they, they move across the landscape and, and find food. But any animal that's just cruising the landscape looking for food, any predator or mesopredator is going to be using their nose. And they're going to, as soon as the wind currents carry that scent of potential food to their nose, if that current is very defined and it's and it's easy to follow, they'll just turn and just work just like a bloodhound. They'll just use their nose and, and walk right to the source of that that tasty smell, and they just here's the turkey nest and ba boom done there it goes right. But when you get into a winter wheat field that is that thick, where you start getting eighteen to twenty four inches of growth, now <clears throat> when she tucks her and, and especially if she goes three hundred yards out into the middle of the winter wheat field or 100 yards out in the middle of the field. Now, when she tucks down in there, her scent is not... Okay, winter wheat is, is planted on roughly a, a seven or seven and a half inch row, somewhere, seven to nine, somewhere. Every row, every planter is going to be a little bit different. My Mine, on the Genesis, it's a seven and a half inch row, all right? So every seven and a half inches, there's another row, and, and it's just plant on plant on plant. You know, each plant is a couple inches from each other, okay, in clusters. So... You get these these long linear corridors that get brushed and, and and bunched over to where there's these little tunnels underneath in between these rows. 
Well, a turkey can tuck, tuck herself down in between those, mash the winter wheat down underneath her on her left and her right out of the way a little bit. <clears throat> but the the bunch grass nature of that winter wheat on the the adjacent, the next adjacent rows, completely canopy covers, almost completely canopy covers over top of her. And then as it really matures and throws a wheat head, seed head, <clears throat> it absolutely will canopy cover over top of her head. So hawks aren't going to see her. But because it's so thick, that scent is not permeating at ground level through all that density, for especially for that amount of distance. So the only thing that can happen is the scent eventually just kind of lifts up over top of the of the of the wheat that's growing, and then the scent will carry across the top of it. But again, that, now the scent is two feet tall, and a raccoon, and and now because the scent has gotten up over top of it, it's just kind of you know it's getting mixed with the air currents and everything else. It's diluted, it's unorganized, and it's very difficult for the animals. I mean, they might, might, might detect it. But even if they do detect it, it's almost impossible for them to really discover it and figure it out and find that spot. And again, raccoons don't like pioneering into that thick landscape. Coyotes don't oftentimes pioneer out in the middle of that thick landscape. They like edges. So they're going to run those edges. They're going to smell. And if it sound if it if it smells like an easy meal, they'll go for it. But if it, but if it's not, they might stop. They might sniff. They look around. Uh, they might investigate just a couple seconds. Well, I've lost it. I don't know where it is. I'm just going to keep on moving. Time management. They're just going to keep covering ground and trying to find that easy food. And so when we had large blocks of winter wheat on the landscape, I think our nesting success. I remember seeing poults. I remember seeing the number of of poults that you know in late summer. The, just the survival, just, you know, hens with, you know, groups of hens with 20, 30 plus poults in, in each of these little summer groups. Um, survival was, was incredible. Um, well, what's changed? And, and, and I mentioned something in the previous podcast, and I'm going to touch a little bit more on it here. Again, if you look at our landscape, our landscape did not originally have a lot of good nesting and brood cover. We're skinny corridors, narrow corridors with little, you know, you know, offshoots off those corridors up into these little pockets of waste ground. Those little pockets are a lot easier for a coyote to pick a crop, pick a pick apart. Those linear corridors focus raccoon movement. They focus coyote movement. They focus bobcats. Everything else, they focus that movement. And so back, at, even though we had our native habitat corridors, they weren't overly great at providing. In my opinion. They weren't overly great at providing adequate nesting, cover, and brood habitat. When you look at what winter wheat was doing on the landscape, and I think turkeys are good. They're they're a very they're a weak species in the fact that they they can't handle a lot of stress and everything wants to eat them. 
but they are a very good, they're a species that absolutely can pioneer into places and exploit habitats. That's why you see so many trap and, and transplant um, efforts from National Wild Turkey Federation and biologists around the states. If there's habitat there that, that turkeys can exploit, that they'll, they'll exploit them. But once you start throwing too many negative factors at them, they, it, it can be difficult. But really, I think when you saw turkeys really, pine, you know, really explode out here, my opinion is, and based on what it, you just, again, you can, if you've lived in this landscape and you, you, you compare all sorts of different data and research from all over, whether it's Texas, Nebraska, it just, there's some in Kansas, but not as much as I wish there was. Um, it seems that during the heyday of our winter wheat, we were subsidizing deer and turkey habitat. Deer benefit from this as well. A, a doe giving birth right now, when most of the time that winter wheat should be two feet or taller and thick and bushy, a doe can walk out 200 yards out in the middle of a winter wheat field and lay down and give birth. And there is very unlikely a coyote is going to be able to suss that out and figure out where that fawn is, at least in the next few days to where that fawn can get up and then finally be able to move with its mother very efficiently. So, and again, I talked about the high protein from September through at least early April, at least early April. Okay. So the nutrition was good for deer. The fawning cover was great for deer as well. We were subsidized. I really believe that agriculture and the style of agriculture we had was subsidizing our deer and our turkey populations, which we benefit from, right? Okay. And I'm going to talk about raccoons here in a minute, but that's what we used to have. But then we had some things change. Global commodities, so... Russia is a wheat producer. Ukraine is a wheat producer. I believe South America produces wheat. There all of a sudden became this big glut of wheat across the the globe. And wheat market in the United States, and especially, I mean, how many people have celiac disease this day? You know, it's, it's, it's popular to be gluten. I I can't, I can't have gluten. I can't. Well, where do you get gluten? Most of the time you're, you're getting wheat gluten. That's the issue. So you had the demand in the United States going down for wheat products. You had a global surplus of wheat in many areas to where it just drove the price of wheat right through the floor to where for several years, many years, a few years back, my landowners couldn't even pencil in a profit. They, they looked at their fixed input costs what's diesel and that and we're not talking about diesel at five bucks a gallon okay or going on six bucks a gallon even with diesel you know costing what it was back then diesel costs fertilizer costs herbicide costs personnel costs you know man you know crop management all all the fixed input costs going into it were greater than what the projected production was going to be and what they could sell that wheat 
product for the the the, the commodity for. So some of the landowners are like, well, we can't make any money off of wheat. We have to do something else. We've got to put it into corn. We have to put it into soybean. We have to put it into Milo. Something. And keep in mind though, the the price of wheat used to be awesome. I we were we were going to but Kelly and I and, and a couple of friends we we put I put together a business model a business proposal. Uh, we were going to take it to a bank and and see if we couldn't get uh, some money to to invest in some property. And my numbers back then were based off of wheat. It was the wheat production that we could get off of the these these uh, properties that were going to basically pay for the lion's share of the banknote. Now you can't even now these last several years you couldn't even pencil a profit in on wheat. All right, so there's a le- again that's one of those lessons I said be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. We or or sometimes the the best gift that God will give you is him to deny you what you asked for because he knows what's coming ahead and you don't if we had borrowed money based off of wheat prices back then we would have either had to gone bankrupt or bottom line we would have had to sell the properties we, we would have absolutely had to sell the properties we would have been upside down and there's no way we would have made it now we we would have adjusted we would have adjusted with some of the commodities and, and maybe we could have made it with corn and beans and everything like everybody else did but we wouldn't have been able to do it off the model that we did for wheat. That's for sure. So not only did you could, could you not make a profit in wheat, you also had ethanol subsidies going crazy. And there's an ethanol plant here nearby. And so a lot of people were talking about, okay, well, we're going to go all in on growing corn because we can make more money. Uh, there's different, you, whether you're selling to the ethanol plant or whether you're selling to stockyards and feedlots, we can start making more money with corn and maybe we'll sell, we, we can, we can, you know, grow soybean or milo or whatever. Okay. Well, that's a summer crop, meaning there's nothing on the ground growing in September, October, November, December, January, February, March, or into early April. At best, you're starting to plant your summer crops in April and May, and then it takes several weeks for them to get popping, and then you're into June and July before you actually have some really good biomass on the landscape, all right? And corn, the corn kernels themselves provide really good food in the winter months, good carbohydrate, good fat to where it it, it packs on the energy and, and heat, but it's relatively low in protein, and that's when you have kernels of corn on the ground that are somewhat fresh. The longer they sit out in the field, the more they leach out, the, the worse they get nutritionally. And then through the bulk of the spring and summer, when things get critical, when those hens, here we are talking turkeys, when hens need a high protein diet, corn kernels, old corn kernels from last fall ain't going to cut it. And there's no winter wheat on the landscape the native vegetation is starting to sprout, that's starting to come in, but that's even a little delayed anyway, and it's not as good as what winter wheat was. So there's no money in winter wheat. There's more money in corn. There's more money, money in soybeans. There's more avenues in which to sell your corn and soybeans. Oh, and with ethanol or wet corn, you, or when you're harvesting it, depending on where you're selling it to, you can uh, harvest dry corn, which is, you know, the very, very dry kernels 
Okay, they can go into a big silo and sit there dried. You run a fan through it, make sure the moisture doesn't get to it, but it can sit there dry and not rot. Okay, versus if you harvest your corn when it has a little bit higher percentage of moisture in it. Okay, you've got to handle it. You've either got to process that immediately or you've got to be very careful on how you handle it so it doesn't rot. Well, ethanol plants and, and some of these feedlots and some of the other places, they can handle a little bit more wet corn. You can harvest that corn a little earlier when that corn is a little wetter on the cob, so there's a little more moisture in it, which means it sticks to the cob a lot better. It sticks to the, the stalk a lot better, and it allows you to harvest it earlier. Now landowners are hard, they're planting more corn on the landscape, but they still have the same number of machines. They just have a hell of a lot more corn. So it just takes them a little bit longer to, to, to chew through all of their harvest. So by being able to start some of your harvest early was a benefit. And so now they're growing summer crops that don't have as much with, when we're talking about corn, which there's a lot of this area turned into, it turned into corn country, okay? Corn stalks themselves that they're growing does not have a lot of nutritional value for deer. They will eat the stalks as it's growing in the summer. They'll pull the heart out of it. They treat it like watermelon. Literally, that's the best way to describe it. They'll go out to the soybean fields. They'll go out to the alfalfa fields. They'll go out to the, the you know, quote-unquote meat potatoes fields. But as they're coming and going, if they've, they're walking by corn fields when it's just brutally hot and dry, corn stalks are juicy and they're sweet. They'll have some nutritional value in there, not as much as the other crop, the the better crops. But so they'll just pull the heart out of it and they'll munch on that thing and treat it again like watermelon, right? But it's not really doing great things for them nutritionally. Once you finally have uh, corn kernels of corn in the ear that they can start tackling, you're talking September, October, all right. So. There's a long time across a massive chunk of real estate in the landscape now that no longer has good forage in those early spring months where those hens need that high protein. And because of the way corn is grown and because we the way we are out in this landscape, weeds travel out here. They tumble across the landscape. We've got the Russian thistle, your classic tumbleweed, Kosha rolls, annual kosha rolls across the landscape. Hemp will get picked up and thrown around on the landscape. So you'll have an amaranth. Jeez, now, nowadays, I almost said it, didn't I? I almost said it. Amaranth, a lot of these things have become herbicide resistant. Meaning, you once it starts, once it gets a couple inches tall, it doesn't matter. It, it's very difficult to kill it. Okay, glyphosate, everybody's go-to evil herbicide, glyphosate, or Roundup, doesn't touch it. You have to go to more specific herbicides. And in some cases, the reality is you've got to go to more nasty herbicides if if a field is infested with it. And the problem is, is if, if your neighbor's field gets infested with this stuff, the winds blow and it's, it's going to take all that seed and it's going to scatter it across your field. So now you've got it. And then your neighbors got it and everybody else around you and everybody has it. So in order, if you don't attack it, if you don't keep it from coming in, it will choke out your crop and it will cause major problems with harvest. It causes major problems with production 
and how much you're getting out of it, which from a farmer standpoint also goes into their profitability, how much money they're making. Very few farmers are overly rich. There are some that make money. They're, they, the bigger farmers, they do well. But we're not talking about, you know, oil tycoons and and bankers' monies. That no, we're we're talking about people trying to make payments on their equipment loans and their land loans and the taxes and everything else to go with it. Okay, they're just like you and your family. You'd like to be able to put a little money aside so the kids can go to school, so you can fix the truck when you need to fix the truck. Maybe one every two, three years, you can go actually go on a vacation if you can find somebody to watch the, you know, anyway. A lot of these weeds have to be controlled. Otherwise, it causes problems. The best way to control some of these is with pre-emergent herbicides. So you spray the field when it's dead and stubble and nothing's growing on it. You spray the field. The chemical covers the surface of the soil. And then as those seedlings pop, that herbicide kills that seedling, just that tiny, tiny little wispy little seedling before it even gets a foothold. That's the only way you can kill it. But what does that do? Those herbicides are going to take care of your all your bad weeds that you want, but they're also going to take care of some lamb's quarters. They're going to take care of native, you know, like ragweeds. They're going to take care of any native broadleaf, forb, or anything else that that's you know wants to grow in that field that might provide some benefit of forage. It's going to nuke those too. And so, for the vast majority of the year, if not the entire year, it's bare dirt and whatever crop is growing there. And when we're talking corn, you're just talking corn stalks. So there's bare dirt, corn stalks with a corn ear of corn on it. And then hopefully after you go harvest, there's some food that falls on the ground. But that's not leaving a lot of high-quality, high-protein food on the landscape. And it most surely is not providing a lot of cover because cornfields are not planted that densely. So even if a, a hand waits until June, Let's say the, the landowner was able to get into the field early and, and was planting corn by the end of April. And the corn is up, you know, they, the old adage was knee-high by the 4th of July is what you want. Well, there's, play, there's plenty of times in the springs we've had, in, or these past couple springs, where we've had moisture enough to where, you know, the corn was knee-high by June, okay, or into June. So <clears throat> even though a hen can walk out in the middle of that cornfield and have overhead cover, it's very sparse. It's thin. Wind currents can move through that type of growth. Their their nest, if she wants to try to nest out there, it's not as protected as it was when it was in winter wheat. So we really started moving away from an agriculture that benefited um, our turkeys and subsidized our turkeys and, and deer, like I said. And we started moving in the direction where our agricultural landscape no longer held the best habitat for nests and brood rearing, which then, I believe, started focusing, concentrating hens, deer, fawning, mostly hens, into relying on those linear corridors, those narrower corridors, those smaller chunks of habitat. 
where it's easier for predators to find them. Okay, now, trust me, I'm going to get to predator management here in a minute, but this is where you'll hear a lot of biologists just pound and, and want to be biologists, just pound the, the table. It's habitat, 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 habitat is key, habitat is key. Okay, hold on a minute. In this neck of the woods, I don't believe that our native habitat was responsible for the level of productivity of our turkey populations that we had. I think the high, I mean, like I said, there's one property that I managed five years ago. I mean, it was not uncommon a few years back. This property would easily, like routinely, hold 150 plus turkeys all summer, all winter, into early spring. They would bust up at spring because there was just way too many turkeys stacked. Up. They, yeah, you can't have that many birds stacked on top of one for a spring flock. But 150 birds all day long, all day long. There was we have some tree stands down there that would it would be problematic to try to hunt it. And deer, literally there were so many turkeys in this, this, this corridor, the deer would just avoid it. It was so loud. There was so much, it was just, there were so many turkeys. It was just insane. It was insane. And that was, that was like consistent. That was normal. That was every spring they would bust up and they would be up and down this particular corridor, plus or minus this property. I mean, there was just birds every freaking where. Now, now, this year, one tom and nine hens. That's what that's what that's what we had all spring there. One tom and nine hens. Now later on in the season, I think I did see a couple jakes show up from somewhere. But one mature bird, nine hens. All right. So marked difference. Just like crazy difference in turkey numbers. I think our turkey, our high turkey numbers. And I, and the, this is where I, you know, I didn't like what he said and I, I didn't want to agree with it, but then I have to think about it. And, you know, my neighbor, the, the, the local game warden brought up, he's like, well, we, we also have to wonder whether our historic high population numbers were actually sustainable. Were, were they just completely artificially inflated because of certain, you know, situations and and we all pine away at having those high numbers but those were wildly unrealistic numbers they they just expanded and and blew up and now they've kind of come back down and settled into their actual sustainable numbers well i think there might be something to that i but i think the issue was is our agriculture was providing the bulk of the habitat. When when you hear these biologists pound the table and say habitat, 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 habitat. Okay, what habitat are we talking about? Because out in our world, if you're talking about native habitat, and we're going to get to some things that are affecting that here in a minute, but when you're talking about our native habitat, you're talking about a very, very small chunk of the real estate. Good native habitat that's suitable for turkey nesting and brood rearing is a small chunk of the real estate out here. So if we want to if we want to be one of those what I call the native rangers where everything's got to be native 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 native. Well then 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 absolutely we need to just scrap the idea of having 150 turkeys on a chunk of river bottom and just go okay no 
because of the native habitat, if we're going to say native habitat, native habitat, native habitat, the native habitat is only going to support, let's, let's be on, let's be generous on the outside and say a dozen to two dozen turkeys in this area. That's a far cry from where we used to be. So when we're talking about habitat, I do look at our agricultural habitat as part of the puzzle and part of what was our success in the past. I, 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 we were wheat farming, I truly believe, was subsidizing our turkey population. And again, like I said, our, our deer population as well. Let me look at here. Okay, so I touched on the cover and clean farming. Okay, yeah. So when 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 you look at winter wheat field going from March into April, massive growth, good high quality food, high palatability, high protein. You go into end of April, now you've got massive amounts of cover and good food because now it's damp underneath there. You've got worms, you got bugs emerging, you've got just there, there's just all sorts of food. And at that point, you've choked out a lot of your. You might have had them come through and spray a uh, a broadleaf pre-emergent herbicide. You know uh, whether it's a 2,4-D, whether it's a, a dicamba or whatever. You've they they probably sprayed a broadleaf herbicide just to knock back the early growth of broadleaf weeds like, you know, especially herbicide-resistant ones like kochia and amaranth and that type of stuff and Russian thistle. But by the time you get into end of April in a normal moisture year, the canopy cover on that winter wheat is so thick, it's choking out everything. So you're they're not coming in there and just pounding the piss out of herbicide. So the herbicide is already gone. You know, it's been used up. It's dissipated out of the landscape, off the, off the landscape. The the vegetative structure grows up to where now it's choking out all the weeds, but you've got cover, you've got food, you've got everything a nesting turkey needs for protection of her nest. And then when the, the poults do hatch, she just wades out through one of those little rows. The little little guys just down through the little row they go, following their mom, and she can take them wherever they want to go. They could live out in that winter wheat field, hell, for at least the 10 days, if not two weeks before they can actually flutter up somewhere and actually fly. So it was great cover. Now we move into a corn cycle. There's nothing growing on that field after harvest in the fall. They spray it so it doesn't grow anything. There's corn kernels out there, sure, but again, we're not talking high-protein foods here, especially when we're talking February, March, as those hens, their biology's change, their, their physiology's changing, they're trying to, they're starting to throw eggs, okay, and, and trying to grow eggs and want a high-protein diet. Well, there's none of that on the landscape. There's no cover on the landscape. The pre-emergent herbicides are keeping that cover off the landscape. It's just... We, 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 if, if people want to talk about habitat loss, one of them is a change in agricultural ag cycle, crop rotation. Okay. Because, oh, that's the other thing too, I was going to say. <clears throat> Two factors here. Remember what I said in the beginning. In the past, you, you, we had small farms still functioning on the landscape. So maybe on a, uh, two by, you know, Two miles by two miles, so four square miles. 
you might have three different landowners, four different landowners on the landscape. Each one of them have different fields in, in there to where it's a puzzle piece. Well, as some of those farmers get older, you know, maybe some of their kids do or do not want to farm or whatever, but all of a sudden you start seeing farms come up for sale, uh, farms consolidating. Another farmer buys that land. Okay. So now there's rather than three or four landowners on this, that landscape. Now there's two or three, or in, as the time progresses, maybe it's now it's just one or two. All right. With that being said, now, okay, so now their crop rotations are, their their field management is a little different because the bigger fields that you have, you can mobilize your equipment more efficiently. So rather than having, you know, a cornfield way the hell over here, a wheat field way over there, a soybean field over there, and this, if you have all your fields in one crop, well, you can mobilize your equipment once, do all the harvest that you need to do there once. You don't have to change heads. You don't have to change combines. You don't have to change what you're doing with your, no, you, you, you roll in and you efficiently harvest a larger chunk of the landscape. You save on mobilization and time management. All right. What I was told also, and I don't know this, I don't know the ins and outs of this, but what I was also told by one of my landowners was also why you start seeing no longer are we seeing this patchwork of different fields it used to be where okay i'm gonna on one chunk of property so let's say you had a square mile uh, you know one square mile 640 acres on that square mile you might have a winter wheat field you might have a soybean field and then you have a big chunk of, of corn on it you would diversify those fields so that way if the weather was bad or something happened you know maybe it it you know, maybe your your your, your hailstorm came in and just absolutely waylaid the piss out of your corn, but your soybeans weren't that bad, and the other field was going to be winter wheat anyway, so you didn't lose anything there. So you hedge your bet, and you don't quote unquote put all your eggs in one basket. Well, apparently there was a change in crop insurance, or there was some way that they were calculating crop insurance where it was incentivizing landowners to plant larger blocks of of crop rather than having a bunch of different crops in the same general area. Again, I don't know the details of it, but based on the conversation was it now it, it, it not only does it make sense from a farm management and logistics standpoint to consolidate your fields to where all your fields in one area are in one type of crop. It also now apparently makes sense financially from a crop insurance standpoint where they can get a better rate if they do that. So now it's a double whammy to where, no, not only are we losing the small farms and it's going to larger farms and and larger landowners, but because of the fuel prices, because of logistics, because of time management, and maybe because of crop insurance and some other things going on, now we don't have this mosaic across this this hypothetical square mile landscape, 640 acres. Maybe now what we see is the landowner that is controlling it, they're just going to put the whole the whole thing into corn. And then the next square mile over, that whole thing might be soybean. Okay, But now it's just gargantuan big blocks of monotypic uh, crop. And again, like I said, 
even if we had two or three landowners in this general vicinity of this this long narrow corridor of of the the river bottom because of commodity prices because of the nature of the markets because of what's going on they're on they're going to do the same thing to be profitable so if there's more money in corn they're going to go into corn and from their financial standpoint from their their logistics and and farm management and mobilization logistics you know time management they're going to plant large blocks. So it doesn't even matter that it might be more than one landowner. We're still massive blocks of corn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a winter. There's, there's, a, there's a, 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 a soybean field over there, and there's a soybean field there, and there, we've got a milo field there. And Oh, sure. Yep. There's winter wheat. Yep. There's, there's a field of winter wheat over there. A field of winter wheat. But you can drive out here for hours and... You just cornfield after cornfield after cornfield after cornfield. Where in the past it used to be winter wheat after winter wheat after winter. Just just this rolling landscape of winter wheat. All right. So there's a variety of different things going on that's changed the landscape out here as far as from just oh golly, and I didn't even think about this. And we'll get to cattle here in a minute. But the other thing is we see more. I see more and more where rather sending rather than sending their cattle to a feedlot in the winter because corn is cattle okay cattle are not deer cattle are closer to bison if you go back to your if you remember biology or if you were in a, a basic ecology class or you know livestock class or whatever cattle their big large stomachs their big rumen the rumen bacteria in that those massive stomachs can break down some really heavy, you know, lignin fibrous stuff. Okay. They don't have to eat, you know, like a deer does and nibble on the best of the best. No, they can just chuck down, bolt down real bad, you know, real coarse roughage and the bacteria in the rumens will break it down. What does that mean? That means corn stalks, leaves of corn, corn cobs, and, and especially the corn itself. Cattle can function and, and utilize that very, very efficiently. And so rather than paying somebody and saying, okay, well, I need to send, I need, because there's no grass on my pastures in the winter, and because I'm, you know, winter wheat, you know, there's really not a lot of food in that stubble, and that stubble gets blown away, and, and I want to keep that stubble, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to send my cattle to... Uh, a feedlot or what we're going to get to here in a minute. I'm going to consolidate my cattle into a feed yard or, or a winter pasture. And then I'll feed them, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll feed them some, you know, hay or, or cane or whatever that I bailed up previous in the year. But regardless now, because of the, the quantity of corn that's on the landscape, corn stubble in the winter, all that biomass, okay, the combine rolls through, cuts the stalk off, mashes it all up. In the machination process, it basically crushes that ear of corn, shattering and, and just taking all the corn off of the, hopefully all the corn off that corn cob. The corn falls through the great, it, it, the machine captures the corn kernels, 
and it just chucks all the other biomass out the back end and either scatters it around or you can just dump it in a a row. But regardless, it pukes all that biomass out the other end. Now, depending on how efficient your machine is, you're going to have some spillage. You're going to have some corn that comes out with it. If the field is really rough, has a lot of terrain features into it, erosion channels in it, terraces in it, and that type of stuff, that machine is going to be up and down, moving all after, and you're going to miss some corn. You're going to miss some corn cobs. And the way the machine is pitching and rolling and the speed of everything, you're going to have some corn come out the other back end. From a cattle standpoint, now from a wildlife standpoint, I like a very inefficient machine because I want as much corn on the ground as possible for critters, turkeys, deer, waterfowl, etc. I want that corn on the landscape in the winter for food. But that doesn't help the landowner pay bills when you're spilling 10% of your field you know, your production in the back end of your field. Now, from a cattle standpoint, now that our winters seem to be nicer, we don't have the brutal wind, we don't have the deep snow seemingly these these past several years. Because there's so much corn on the landscape, it makes sense to where the, the cattle grazers are like, hey, I'll lease that your ag field, I'll go create I'll go graze my cattle on those corn stalks. Because it's great, it's great cattle feed. And so here they turn 50, 150, 200, 300 head of cattle out on these big cornfields and they'll graze them for months on end. And they'll take every stinking drop of corn, leaf material, stalks, everything. And it basically turns into a landscape a lot, a lot of just dirt, remnant stalks, and a whole bunch of nothing. Now, granted, if you've, and this is not to be graphic, but you don't dang well, you have a, you, you enjoy a, a, a picnic in the summer and you eat a couple ears of, you know, sweet corn the next day when you go take care of your daily business after your cup of coffee, you're going to know, Hey, guess what? I had corn last night. Cause there it is in the toilet bowl. Right? So yes, in cattle, you're going to have corn come out the other end and turkeys love to pick through corn pile or, uh, 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 cow pies and pick the corn out but deer don't okay so having cattle on the landscape and and grazing your fields um is removing biomass off that landscape and 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 food off that landscape the other thing is is some people they, they don't want the compaction from the hooves but what they'll do is they'll say all right no i don't want you grazing it but we'll go out and swath it and bale it and so they'll go out there with a rake They'll rake the whole thing into the, all that biomass into furrow uh, into into windrows, and then they'll come in with their baler and they'll bale it, and they'll get massive round bales. They'll get a, I mean, depending on the size of the field, you get a whole shit ton of corn stalk round bales that can be used for cattle feeding cattle in the winter. The thing is, when you do that, you do remove a hell of a lot of corn with it. So. You've got, not only are you growing corn, which doesn't provide a lot of, of nesting cover and good protein on the landscape early on anyway, and it doesn't provide really good brood habitat during the middle of the summer, you finally get some kernels of corn that are on the landscape, and now we've got more and more cattle producers utilizing what gets thrown out the back end of a combine and not leaving it for wildlife to use, all right? The other thing, technology's it, it, it can 
just like your vehicle. Remember when you used to have to go buy a, a, an after, like a think about it in your vehicle. Remember when GPS units became popular to where you could buy a GPS unit that you put in your car and you plugged into the cigarette lighter and like the little Tom Tom GPS thing where you'd punch it. It's a standalone unit that you bought second. It was like buying this car stereo. You went and bought a little GPS and put it. How many cars now have GPS in their standard? Same thing with your stereos. Look at the technology. Look at look the the, the rear view cameras in, in your vehicles now. Motion sensors and cam on your vehicles now. Keeps you on the road, gives you warnings when people are I mean it's it's crazy where technology is gone just on a on a basic passenger car just for safety. Well, think about it from an agriculture standpoint. These are people that sit in a combine and they need to take they, they need to maximize their efficiency eight ways from Sunday. So now you've got combines that will actually, you can, not only is the efficiency of the equipment so much better to where they're puking out less kernels of corn out the back end, there's even now that it, it, the computer system in the combine can regulate the screen and the conveyor belt inside the, the machine to the pitch of the combine. So if the combine's pointed in one direction, it'll slow the, the, the conveyor belt through so that the, the machine has more time to get the kernels out versus if it's going another way and everything, gravity's trying to puke it out the other. It will absolutely adjust on the fly to maximize its efficiency on extracting every kernel of corn off that ear, trapping it in the hopper and not throwing it out the back. There are some of my landowners fields where at the end of, especially if, if it's a, if it's a good fall and that corn dries out early and they harvest early, or if, if my landowner see my land, one of my landowners has his own grain bins that he has massive fans in it. He can actually harvest his corn early at a higher moisture level, throw it in the grain bin and he can dry it down with air fans faster than he can wait for it to dry down in the field. So it helps him with his harvest efficiency, but it means he can pull corn off the landscape early. And when he does that, the fields that he starts on, it might as well look like a Walmart parking lot. There's there's not a kernel out there. So when we say, you know, when the, when the biologists talk about habitat, 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 Habitat is the con- the comprehensive habitat on the landscape. And we have had a massive fundamental shift in the overall habitat that we actually functionally have on the landscape for turkey nesting and turkey brood habitat and survivability. All right. I talked about grazia, blah, 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 blah. Oh, and... and Okay, so let me let me put a pause on the raccoon thing a minute because we're going to get to the raccoons, okay? And a lot of you believe like I do. I think we need to do something different with our predator, our predator and mesopredator management, okay? But we're going to get to that in a minute. I, I want to give credit where credit is due. The people that scream habitat, they are correct to a certain extent, okay? But what are we going to do, you and I, hobbyists, hunters, 
What are we going to do to change the agricultural landscape of our farmers and the lands that we hunt on to incentivize those farmers to go back to growing wheat? Good luck. Okay? Put a pin in it. Hold on. So I was talking about, let's, let's, let's go to cattle management a minute. All right? Now, we just talked about grazing corn stalks and, and, and that type of stuff. Just like farmers getting older and some of them retiring, some of them selling, some of them just, they're just unable to do stuff anymore as much as they used to be, do. Same thing with a lot of the cattle producers. I'm, I'm thinking of family right now that I feel, I mean, it just sucks. Their, their parents are, their parents are diehard long. I mean, they are cattlemen, they are farmers and, and they will die on that farm. And, um, Sadly and nobly, they will probably die in their truck as they're checking cattle out there fixing fence. Um, they'll die doing what they were they, that they love doing, and that that's just who they were. They are or who they are. Um, you're not gonna. I, I there's just I just don't. They're not going to a home. They're not. They're 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 gonna. They will farm and they will be active on the farm until the kids hog time and, and haul them off or or just to the day they die. And I think that's what it'll end up being. But they're getting up there. They can't do what they used to do. Uh, the kids are still, one of them's farming, one of them's doing some other stuff plus farming. So they're, they're, they're making it work and they're managing it. But, you know, when you have multiple people um, managing an operation and then all of a sudden you take two of the most productive people out of that equation just due to age, it's hard to fill back. It's hard to backfill that type of, especially in in a in a community like ours, where you know you don't have you've got some kids staying and farming, but you've got a lot of people that are just once they graduate high school, they're they're leaving, they're they're gone, they're they're moving off, they're going somewhere else. So anyway, my point being is is some of these cattle producers getting up in age don't have the ability to go out and fix fence like they used to be able to fix fence across all their pastures. Don't have the ability to afford. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, the the numbers, the quotes we were getting the other day, listening to a couple of uh, landowners. We were sitting at my my garden out here at the table. The, the, the price of fencing is insane. If you, if, I mean, so the cost of of staying on the landscape are going up the age it's making it more difficult for some of them to continue to do what they were doing in the past managing moving cattle from pasture to pasture to pasture to pasture maintaining those fences etc and again we've been in a drought cycle now for this year i mean for a while and and over the past several years we've been in a drier cycle in the summer to where some of our pastures just aren't producing the same amount of grass as they used to produce so what does that mean what am i seeing i am seeing more and more where we have and 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 this is not okay and i want to be very clear i'm not judging these cattle producers and you know waving my finger and shaking my finger going you assholes this is what they need to do again people ask all the time why I I I 
you know, the one of the last YouTube videos I have is that understanding ideology and why I, I hammer on understanding the uh, uh, um, personalities and value sets because not everybody values wildlife. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, seriously, I don't know how many of you value underwater basket weaving, but someone out there does. I, yeah, but we all have different value sets. There are people that really don't care whether there's whitetails on the landscape or mule deer or if there's turkeys on the landscape or not. Now, some of the farmers will be like, yeah, I remember. I, I used to like seeing those mule deer. It's a, it's a curiosity thing. It's this, oh yeah, gee whiz thing. But that's as far as it goes. They don't have the value that we do. I don't have the value for owning and managing and, and running cattle like cattle producers do that's their livelihood that's that's their entire dream that's their entire life that's that's all that they've ever wanted to do and and when they look at a, a herd of cattle it evokes the exact same emotions and and direct tie-in and uh connectivity to their soul as it does for me looking at whitetails and turkeys and you know hell fox squirrels and quail and pheasants oh my okay that's my value set. Value my value set is wildlife and the habitats that that they that they live in. Others are farmers and that's just who they are and and others are cattle producers and that's who they are. Wildlife and natural habit natural landscapes are important ish. But their focus is on what is their grassland management? What is their cattle management? That's their value set. And so some of these I've seen more and more where for a variety of reasons we're find, we're seeing people bring their cattle into river corridors uh creek bottoms waste ground areas where they're better confined there's again what I say in the beginning this was all disturbed landscape back 100 years ago, 150 years ago, to where many of these areas were replanted back into brome. So there's a lot of brome in these corridors. Well, brome is good grass for cattle. Absolutely. So And it has a good sod layer, so it's very, very hardy. It, it can handle a pounding, and it will keep growing back each spring and each fall. Um. You've got the trees, you've got the shrubs, you've got the brush, you, you've got some protection there. You've got thermal cover in the summer, in the shade. You've got wind protection in the winter when when you know when the leaves are off the trees. You got the tree corridor there, at least it can block some of the wind. Um, it can block some of the snow drifting. All right, to where, um, well, actually sometimes it drifts in more there. But regardless, you got you, you're pulling these cattle into some of these riparian corridors plus if there's water in there you don't have to have a stock tank you don't have to worry about hydrants busting pipelines busting you know pumps freezing up or or pumps going bad you don't have to worry about busting ice out of a stock tank if it's got a creek bottom or a river bottom going through it and you can have it because out here you can access the river you there is no protection there are no protections around those river corridors to keep livestock out so you can graze right down in the river so if you've got access to that, what's called live water, water that's actually moving on the landscape, whether it's spring-fed or if it's a river or a creek or whatever, if you have access for your cattle to live water, 
that's not going to freeze up in a protected pocket that had some grass where, okay, it's a confined pasture. It's easier for me to fix the fence on one pasture. It's cheaper for me to fix the fence on one pasture. And it's easier for me to keep track of cattle if they're in that one pasture. And because of how much corn bales I can find on the landscape, maybe I even bale it up myself. I can go to that field, I can grow corn, and I I can bale up my own corn bales, and I can stockpile my own food. I can go out to that field and I can plant it into sorghum sedan grass, some hybrid sorghum sedan, and I can grow the shit out of cattle food. In the summer, especially in a dry summer, in a drought summer, a lot of, <coughs> <coughs> sorry, that's what I'm planning on putting in a lot of my food plots this summer. It's a, it's going to be a summer drought tolerant cover crop just for the strict, I, I need to suppress weeds. And I want to provide some bedding cover for some deer and some escape cover from, you know, quail and pheasants and turkeys and everything else um, and some late winter food. But it's it's going to be a lot of cover crops that are going to be uh, highly drought resistant. And that means a lot of these are going to be grass type species that a lot of ranchers will grow for cattle feed that they can bail up. And they can get multiple cuttings on it. It's easy. It's easier on a body to have somebody fill up the planter or the drill and then you just sit in the in a tractor and you can drive around the field and you can drill your your field and let it grow. And then you can climb into your swather and you can go down and cut it down and, and you can get in your tractor and you can rake it up and flop it over and dry it out and roll it in, you know, fold it into some windrows. And then you can climb into your baler, your tractor and pull the bale, you know, the baler behind it and you can roll it up into round bales. And then you've got a truck that has a flatbed, a hydro bed, or a, you know whatever cattle management, where basically it's big scissor arms that attach to the side of the bed. It's hydraulic, opens up, flops over, put it down next to the bale. You pinch it together to where it grabs the bale, and then the whole thing just picks it up, whoop, puts the bale right on the back of the bed of the truck. You literally can do two bales at a time on a, the back of the pickup. And then you can drive down into your riparian corridor and you can put the bales out and you can feed your cattle. It's a lot easier system. And I know for a fact, I'm looking at neighboring landowners that, you know, again, I right now, I'm, I, I just calculated up, I'm sitting right about 7,000 acres that I manage right now. That I'm at, relevant, what I, again, go back and listen to what I call relevant acres. 7,000 relevant acres. Acres that matter where you could go hunt and actually find a critter that you want to go hunt. Okay, 7,000 acres roughly. <clears throat> Even on that landscape, the way that the properties are, are chunked up, I don't contain a, a home range of a whitetail. I don't contain the entire home range of a turkey. They will go on and off of my neighbors, and that overall hand, landscape, habitat landscape, it's a mosaic of my habitats and my neighbors' habitats and, and everyone in, around and in between. So when I look at my neighbors and I see some of these areas where I know, okay, turkeys used to pile into these places because of the way the habitat, the way the, the habitat was in those chunks of, of river bottom and, and you know the landscape around it. 
and more importantly, whitetails. I can I can look and see as I know that that's where the whitetails used to bed because they had such and such a habitat or they had such and such cover. Well, now a lot of these places they have had cattle in um, for almost, I, I'll bet you very quickly here we're going to be going on twelve months. These cattle, I mean, like several hundred, you know. Anyway, anywhere well, depending on the on the on the on the landowner, but anywhere from seventy-five to say one hundred and fifty to two hundred have been there almost a year, and there's no, you, you there you can tell that there's really no plan on moving them because really there's no place to move them because the grass pastures that they have access for grazing really aren't producing a lot of grass. I mean, there's some growing back, and and they're letting it green up, and hopefully they'll put them out there and partake of it give the river bottoms a break. But from a cattle management standpoint, it's easy. They're still feeding cattle because there's not enough biomass, grass biomass on the landscape because it's been so dry. They still have to feed cattle. Well, if they're going to feed cattle, what would they rather be? If they're go- if they're going to feed cattle, then, they're, then the cattle need to be somewhere where they're going to be fed. Where do you want to feed your cattle? Where do, If you're going to have to store your cattle in some place, where would you rather beat the piss out of? A piece of ground that you consider waste ground that means nothing to you as far as ha- their wildlife habitat is irrelevant. Remember that. It, that's irrelevant. This riparian corridor has live water. I don't have to do water management. Excellent. It's got protection, uh, shade and cover and everything else for my cattle. Excellent. It's one fixed pasture. I can maintain that fence around that pasture and not have to worry about it. Excellent. That's easy. And I can just, it's easy access for me to haul bales in and I can feed these cattle. Absolutely easy. Would you rather beat the piss out of that? Uh, Again, in an area that is largely dominated in the understory by brome, which can handle a lot of abuse. Or would you rather go out and beat the piss out of your native warm season upland dryland pasture areas where they're probably pushing being overgrazed anyway just because we haven't had a lot of of you know grass production we haven't had a lot of rain but out there you have to maintain your your stock tanks you have to maintain your water lines you have to maintain your pumps you have to maintain a hell of a lot more fence if you're an older family or your family's being whittled away by death or by family members moving away or whatever, it's easier to just stockpile your cattle into these confined locations and just feed the cattle. But there goes a chunk of real estate that used to be used by wildlife, whether it was for deer hiding, escape cover, bedding, fawning cover, turkey nesting, turkey brood cover, winter range, whatever. On that chunk of ground that I told you that routinely would hold 150 plus birds, our neighbors on either side of us had phenomenal cover, phenomenal habitat in these particular chunks of the the drainage that they, in the past, Never touched, never disturbed. It wasn't, there was no need for them to do so, and it was more problematic for them to try to use it. Now, 
conditions on the landscape have changed. Now it is where it's conducive and it actually makes sense for them to utilize these areas for their cattle. Well, we've lost the production habitat, that factory, if you will, of habitat that contributed to that massive population of turkeys. I'm seeing that. Uh, so I've got one, two, three. Hold, 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 let me take a step back. One. Yeah, let me count a minute because I just realized it's more than what I thought. One. Two, there's at least a half a dozen. Core habitat, what I would say, a habitat like a production area where it was a factory for deer. It was a factory for uh, turkeys. There's at least a half a dozen I can think of right now that have had cattle in them now for going on the better part of a year where the landowners are just simply feeding cattle there. They're trying to milk out every ounce of efficiency in their daily operations as well as profitability that they can in, in their operations because again costs keep going up but their prices you know they're they're pay, it's it sounds like a cliche anymore but farmers are the only ones that pay retail prices for everything that they need and then whatever they produce they have to sell at wholesale prices so they're taking the shaft on both ends they're selling their product for pennies on the dollar but they're paying out the nose to produce it for you. So, yeah, so, so there you go. So cattle management, pasture management has changed drastically. Some of these river bottom corridors are just getting, just, I mean, they're, they're grazed down to nothing. I mean, there's, there's no longer cover in there. There, there's, and, and it's, it's just pushed all the wildlife into adjacent oftentimes now more marginal habitats. But when I say it's pushed the wildlife, it's pushed the deer, it's pushed the turkeys, but guess what? It's pushing the coyotes, it's pushing the bobcats, it's pushing the raccoons, it's pushing, it's everything's going with it. So it's focusing all the critters into the remaining pockets of good habitat. Well, you can't stack a whole bunch of, of prey items in a tiny area and then stack all the predators in that tiny area as well and then expect them to just sing around the you know sing kumbaya every night something's going to give the other thing we're seeing on the landscape and this it is what it is it's it's like it's like this across the entire west cheatgrass you you've heard me talk about it. if you follow me any t- length of amount of time you heard me talk about cheatgrass cheatgrass it's or downy brome. Um, you can even th- throw corn brome in there. But anyway, the the, the early season that that cheat grass, it it'll germinate in the fall, get green. It acts almost like winter wheat. It acts almost identical to winter wheat, but it ha it, it like little legitimately. It's like a, a yeah. It it's like a little mini winter wheat. Winter wheat. It'll germinate in the fall, turn green, and it'll stay green. Now. When it's at that small green stage, yes, deer will utilize it. I have seen deer grazing on it. Turkeys, not so much. I have seen deer utilizing cheatgrass when it's young and at, you know early growing. 
but it'll stay green through the winter. It'll stay dormant. And then as soon as early spring comes on, it just starts rocking. And it's called cheat grass because it creates a very fibrous, a very shallow, densely fibrous root system that literally might be only a couple inches deep. And oftentimes it's a couple inches deep growing in its own stubble, its own. So it'll grow, it'll die, it'll fall, and then it'll become a mat of vegetation. And then the seeds fall on that mat of vegetation and the next round of seeds germinate and the roots fill in under the mat of vegetation that it's, so basically you have seedlings growing on the carcass of its parents and grandparents and great grandparents and great grandparents. If you want to look at it that way, it, and literally there's some places where I've gone out and grubbed out six to nine inch layers of, of cheat grass mat. It's imagine putting a massive, just layer after layer of sleeping bags. That that's what it is. It just, it just like this blanket after blanket after blanket. And it's a cheat cheat grass because it cheats everything else out of moisture and sunlight. Out of resources because the densely fibrous root system is extremely shallow, but it will catch everything and it'll use it first. So you get a rainstorm and rather than that rain percolating through and getting into the soil surface and getting it, getting down into the soil structure to where your native grasses can actually use them, the cheat grass root system will soak it up like a sponge, hold it, and then the cheat grass uses it and it doesn't allow it as much to percolate down through the soil structure. And then cheat grass goes to seed massively or way earlier than anything else. So it, it uses all the resources, uses all the water, and it goes to seed, and it's a prolific seed producer. And it creates this massive blanket of seed. All that biomass then falls down on the soil surface, chokes out everything else that's trying to come up through it, and then it just sits there. And then come fall, the cheat grass germinates in, in the carcass of its own self previously, turns green, and then it, the cycle continues. Cheatgrass is marching across the landscape out here viciously. And it's partly, in, there, there's a variety of reasons for it. One of them has to do with the, the culture of grazing out here in many, there are a lot of people that will lease pasture, uh, rent pasture ground, and, and or like, for instance, one of my, my landowners, they, they run stocker cattle. So basically they're buying yearlings, taking the yearlings, bringing them out. They buy them as a yearling for a price, say that, say that yearling, I'm going to use arbitrary numbers. <clears throat> say they buy it at 400 pounds, five, that, that, that you're, they're buying a, a cow at, or a, a steer at four or 500 pounds. They're putting it on the grass all summer long. And then what they're hoping to do is sell it later on in the, in the summer. Let's say they sell it for arbitrary numbers. Let's say they sell it for a thousand pounds. Okay, so their grass on their landscape gave them. Let's say, let's say they bought it at five. They bought it at five hundred pounds. They sold it at a thousand pounds. So their pasture put five hundred pounds of muscle and and carcass weight on that animal. That's what they get paid for. So that's their profit margin. Okay, but they take possession of that animal end of April, beginning of May, and they turn their cattle out on their pasture in May. They pull them off the pasture and they sell them or at least not sell them, but send them to a feedlot to finish them, say in October, November. All right. So you're, you're, you're hammering your pasture at the same time, the same way every year, year in, year out, year in, year out, year in, year out. Well, guess what? 
cheatgrass is a cool season grass. So it's exploiting the time on the landscape when the cattle are not there. It goes to seed right before the cattle show up. The cattle show up on the landscape. Now they're out, the cattle are out there seeking the native grasses. They're walking all over the place and they're grinding that cheatgrass into the seed or excuse me, into the ground, into the soil. And they're kicking it and they're, they're, you know, the wind is blowing it around and it's spreading it. <coughs> it's sticking into their, their hair on their, their lower legs and they're spreading it. So they're spreading the seed around in the landscape. They're grinding it into the dirt. The seed just sits there all summer. And then in the fall, right before, you know, as, as the cattle are moving on, the cheatgrass germinates, it grows without the cattle being there. It sits, it waits, it the cheatgrass is taking advantage of a time slot where cattle are not removing it from the landscape. Again, if you followed me on Instagram for any length of time, you know, back when there was an Instagram TV, I don't even know what's going on with that anymore. But regardless, um, I shared some of my strategies on, on doing some food plots and pasture management for cattle and uh, wildlife and talking about utilizing some forage species that will, will grow with cheatgrass. To make that cheatgrass grow higher, prolong the life of the cheatgrass, allow the cattle to get in there and eat some of that biomass off so they're removing some of that biomass along with the, the beneficial forage so we don't have that carpet of cheatgrass seed. We don't have that carpet of biomass that's choking out the native vegetation. Okay, Well, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of acres out here. It's, just, it's getting worse every year where cheatgrass is starting to become a prominent component on the landscape. And um, I'm working on a project right now for one of my landowners, uh, this entire river bottom. We had a, a year, and this is several years back, I remember very vividly, we had a very, very wet spring. Um, cheatgrass was going crazy. It was like knee high. It was insane. It was thick, tall, massive seed heads. It was a wet spring. It just, everything was doing well. All that massive seed load was on the landscape, and then we had those massive rains in the summer and early fall, and we had just brutal flooding. And all of that cheatgrass seed went and just just all the flood waters, all the areas where we had overland flow and flash floods and massive bat like the the Solomon River right now is about ten yards wide, eight to ten yards wide, and it's about mid calf deep. During the flood there were places where it was more than a mile wide and it was more than 10 feet above flood stage um, in some of the... It just We're talking massive floods. Well, it just took all that cheatgrass seed and weed seed. We've got same thing. You've got your amaranth. You've got your, your koshas. You've got your uh, Russian thistles. You've got your uh, velvet leaf. You've got hemp. You you name it, all the crud that we've got out here, along with the cheatgrass, just spread everywhere. We had a bumper crop of crap seed, weed seed load, and then we just spread it everywhere. Now here's the here's the other shittery about it. Those weed species like disturbed soil. They like disturbed environments. Some of the flooding was so bad that it actually took away some of the topsoil. It dissolved some of the organic matter out of the of the top part of the soil profile and just washed it away. It washed away some of our good native vegetation and just left sand and silt 
and just bare dirt in so many places. Well, guess what's going to grow there? Cheatgrass, hemp, kochia, herbicide-resistant, spiny, spiky, nasty amaranth, velvet leaf. All these things that wildlife, real, other than Russian thistle, really don't use. Okay? So, it, it's been years now coming back. So, again, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. The people that want to talk about habitat, 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 yes, it is habitat. We are seeing changes in habitat. Just even in our native ground, we're seeing changes due to weeds um, and uh, and other cha- and, and whether it's grazing, whether it's agriculture. All right. Um. Now the one thing that did come up, and, and okay, so let me address. There was multiple of you that that wanted to know about CRP. CRP stands for Conservation Reserve Program. In general, the federal government pays farmers to take areas that were under tillable ag, okay, at ground that was formerly farmed and convert it back into native warm season grasses, native grasses to stabilize soil from wind and, and water erosion. And then, you know, now, especially with carbon sequestering and all this other stuff, global warming stuff, there's all sorts of, and, you know, plus, 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 but not just all that crap, but also wildlife habitat, okay? Pheasants forever, quail forever, and others are, are big and, you know, CRP is huge for pheasant populations and our pheasant production and the entire up the probably the vast majority of our entire upland bird hunting industry in the United States okay so conservation reserve program field you know areas CRP areas now when you hear me talk about CRP it's become like Xerox you know when you said somebody can you go down to the copiers can you I I need you to run to the the store and, and get a Xerox of this no, Xerox was a, was a company name. It was a, was a trade name. You wanted to get a copy of it. Xerox just made copiers. And they were ubiquitous everywhere. And they made most of the copiers. So Xerox became the name or the, 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 the statement that you said when you wanted to get a copy of something. Right? Same thing with CRP. A lot of people say, oh, CRP grasses. Okay, no, no, no. There's a lot of different grasses that you can have in CRP. But most of the time, when you hear people talk about CRP, you're talking about switchgrass, big blue stem, Indian grass, and then you start getting to secondary ones like little blue stem, maybe side oats grandma, which I hate. Okay, but regardless, the, the big three are switchgrass, Indian grass, big blue stem. These are the big, tall, just thick grasses where you see people doing the bulk of their pheasant hunting out in whether it's western Kansas, Nebraska, Dakotas, etc. Okay. Well, it's a government program, and you enroll for a certain period of time. You get paid per the acre each year to that you're enrolled in it. You're supposed to do certain things to maintain it or manage it. Blah blah blah. But then the the period of that contract, it's a finite contract, maybe ten year long. It it, it it's expired, and then. It, you have the the landowner has the option. Do they re-enroll and, and roll it back into the, the 
program or do they just say, nah, I want to do my own thing with it anymore. So maybe I'm going to just disc it all under and I'm going to turn it back into a crop field. Maybe the price of corn is such now where, you know, before I was getting paid, let's say $50 an acre for the, the, the federal government was paying the landowner $50 an acre to keep it in this tall, big, warm season grass. Okay. Native warm season grass mix. Well, now maybe the, the price of corn or soybean or quite honestly, maybe cattle forage is I can make 75 bucks an acre. I can make a hundred bucks and I can make 150. I can make 200 bucks an acre off this ground. So no, it's not, it's there. There's no incentive there for me now to keep it into a government program and locked up for 10 years. No, I'm going to let it expire and then I'm going to do something with it. Yes, that did happen with some of, so, so sorry. There are a lot of people that are concerned because this, there's been a lot of CRP ground that has come out of that program, which means now the landowner can do whatever the landowner wants to do. The landowner owns it. Don't do not misconstrue this. This is not federal ground. This is not public ground. This is not hashtag I'm a public landowner. No, this is private property that the landowner owns. The landowner's paying the taxes on. The landowner has to pay the loan note on. This is their property that at the time when the CRP program was, when they enrolled it, it was profitable and it made sense for them at that time to enroll that piece of ground into the program for their financial and management management goals, whatever it was. Now, things are different. Fuel isn't the same price, is it? Fertilizer isn't the same price. Herbicides aren't the same price. The cost of equipment has gone up a little bit. The cost of trying to maintain old and aging equipment, if you can even get the parts, is stupidly expensive. So now a profitability margin of maybe $50 an acre on this particular chunk of, uh, of ground, it, it just may not be cutting it. it, it like, no pun intended, it, it's just not cutting it anymore. They need to be able to make more money off of the ground that they have so they can at least maintain the operation that they have. And so they pull that CRP out and utilize it in some other way. Yes, did we have that happen in this last go-around? Yes, there were. One of my landowners has a big chunk of CRP that is not re-enrolled, and I'm praying to dear Lord that we can maintain, he just keeps it as is because it's one of the best pheasant production areas we've got on any of our properties. Other landowners went ahead and re-enrolled their CRP into the CRP program this year. So now they're they're going to be protected for a, a chunk of years, okay? But the, the ground, for us out here, the ground that was removed from CRP, I, I think it's a, it for us, I think based on just my observations, I, I don't know. All I can say is from what I've seen, the relevant CRP, yeah, that, that's a better way to put it. The relevant CRP that concerns me. The CRP that's on my landowners and or around my landowners um, and contributing to the wildlife resource that we're all using, okay, or that, that we all experience. A bunch of our CRP was re-enrolled, so it's still protected. Now, I'm going to talk, John, you've heard me rail about the bullshit that they did last year, but regardless, I'll put a pin on that. Um, the, the CRP that did not get re-enrolled, I'm not seeing it getting tilled under and converted to cropland. Not yet anyway. 
What I am seeing it being used for is native grass bales. So they've swathed it in a bale. They just bailed it up. So it looks like a, 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 it might as well look like your high school football field. It's all mown down. It looks just as flat as a pool table. It's just, it's mowed. Um, and they swapped it, bailed it, took all the bales off because they can use that. They, they can sell those bales or they can use those bales, especially now that we've had been in this extreme drought. Um, prolonged, now we are in extreme, well, I may have downgraded, I don't know, but we're still in a drought. But anyway, you can feed those bales to cattle and you can make a lot more money off, off just off those bales. Um, there's other landowners that are actively grazing those areas. So they're not swathing and bailing it, but they put a fence around it and they're just grazing it. The bulk of my landowners did go ahead and re-enroll. Now there is a one chunk of ground that one of my landowners did not re-enroll and he is planning on grazing it, um, which is a bummer. Uh, I understand why, but it still sucks. Uh, the other landowner I was just telling you about it, he did, he did not re-enroll his chunks, but he's not planning on changing the, ma- the, the, the nature of the habitat as of yet, as of yet, but we'll see. Um, the problem for us with the chronic, uh, chronic, the CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program, was whoever was administering it last year, and I've talked about this before, made everyone that wanted to re-enroll burn, disc, or bail, 100% of their CRP acres last April. Like March through April. Then go in and drill some broadleaf, uh, some legumes and some other stuff in there to diversify the, the the vegetative structure in that ground, which is great. That's good. That's smart. That's, a, that's good. And it is good to periodically go through these fields, you know, these, these CRP fields and manage, you know, burn them, uh, disc them, swath them or whatever, just to take some of the old decadent stuff off. But really, 100% of your acres across all the landowners, across all the lake, we went from having some of the best pheasant production in quail and, I mean, just some of the most unbelievable habitat. Our pheasant population had finally really bounced back just phenomenally to where we just lost 100% of the functionality of 100% of all our acres across thousands and thousands of acres. Every CRP field cut down to nothing right before nesting season. Right in the middle as we were rolling into a drought. So the vegetation, it bounced back some in places, but not nearly thick enough to hide a rooster pheasant. Barely enough to hide a hen pheasant. And they just got, so now all those, all those upland birds that were relying on those thousands of acres of CRP, now there is no, it's, it's mowed. It's, it's three inches tall. Where the hell are they going to go? Into the disturbed river bottoms that's mostly brome? Into the waste ground pockets that are, that, that are like these tight little pockets where all the predators are piled into anyway? We went from record, like getting back on track to have rec, some of our record number of pheasants to, to like none. You hear me talk about it before, where I we would go walk a field and you'd kick up one rooster and I'd just I'd be like I can't shoot you man I, there's no way my dog is looking at me like get him I just can't I'm like I'm sorry buddy I can't man I, there's no way in good conscience I can shoot the only freaking I want to put a freaking 
anyway, it, it just sucked, man. It just sucked. Now, are we back in a cycle where, okay, this ground is protected? Sure. It's going to be a build back. It's going to take several years to build ourselves back out of the, the, the deficit of this management action by the federal government. Um, but I can tell you right now that if you look at where, you know, and again, I've talked about before, you'll hear, you'll hear other biologists, turkey biologists talk about the, you know, the turkeys have, you know, turkeys having this kind of reproductive strategy of this like exploded lek idea where I, I don't know if I buy into that. I, I don't know. I, I see the point. I understand neither here nor there. I can tell you though where turkeys are going to be roosted in the spring where they where they bust out of their spring fl- or winter flocks and they they scatter across the landscape and where those hens decide to roost year in and year out is within easy dispersal distance 99 or 90 plus 95 plus percent of the time within easy dispersal distance of CRP fields like every single one and the more you spend time in the landscape driving around and looking and looking at aerials and looking at satellite imagery and, you know, going and parking in the morning, sitting on a hill, listening to where a roost site is, and then go looking at satellite imagery and then look at the, the habitat around it, you're like, oh, yeah. Within a few hundred yards, several hundred yards, there's some semblance of a CRP field around there. Or a CRP field that's adjacent to some really good wild native, you know, that waste, good, good thick, diverse, quote-unquote, waste ground area. So last year, I think the reason why, part of the reason why, you know, again, we're talking about death by a thousand cuts. All these things just add up, okay? So CRP, we've lost some permanently. Not a significant amount. We lost a shit ton temporarily last year. And I still don't think it's really good nesting cover this year. Next, if we can... We'll see what this summer does, and we'll see what this fall does. Hopefully, we get some monsoon moisture, but we'll we'll see. But hopefully, we can start growing ourselves back into some good brood cover and overhead structure for just some nest protection and, and just dis, dissipation of, of scent from a hen and her nest. Um, but, I mean, again, swathing and bailing and then drilling in alfalfas and yellow and white sweet clovers and other uh broadleaves in there that that okay that's legit and that it, that is benefiting those landscapes uh it's going to add diversity to it it's going to add some structure to it in the future over these upcoming years it will pay off but right now we're taking it in the shorts so let's just wrap up then with what i've been talking about with predators So in the beginning, we were talking about winter wheat, subsidizing deer turkey numbers because of the food, the high quality protein that it provided for an extensive amount of time on September through April, you know, mid-September, so you got mid-October, December, January, February, March, mid-April. So let's just say mid, let's just say minimum food, seven months. High protein, high palatability, high digestibility food on the landscape, seven months. 
And then the next, so that's mid-April, so mid-May, June. So the next two months, even if it's not providing good food for deer, it's providing good bedding cover and fawning cover out there in the middle of those fields. And then for turkeys, you might switch from the vegetative structure of the food resource. Now you're switching into a structure and a nesting structure and a brood habitat structure habitat characteristic and and all the the soft-bodied insects and worms and everything else underneath that shaded canopy of those winter wheat fields so massive amount of high quality habitat on the landscape when we were in winter wheat that subsidized deer and turkey but really there's really not a lot there for raccoons Raccoons aren't laying fat, laying on fat because they're out there grazing on winter wheat. Okay. Back in those days, we would have a lot of raccoons on the landscape, sure. But those land a lot of times those raccoons were mostly found along the creek corridors, along those areas where you had, you know, water of some nature, or you know, just moist soil environments where you had frogs. You had more insects. You had, and then the creek bottoms. You had the tadpoles and the fishes and everything else, the, the crayfish and all that stuff going in there. And then they would be found around the cornfields. And that would be a cornfield here, cornfield there, cornfield here, cornfield there. There would, there would be sporadic scattered cornfields. So while we were, the habitat, the, the, the crop rotation and dominance of the time was subsidizing deer and turkey, it was not conducive to artificially inflating the raccoon population. Fast forward to today. Just every field is corn. Corn everywhere. And raccoons are masterful at adapting and utilizing marginal landscapes and succeeding in them as long as they have food. And so now we have raccoons. I've showed pictures on my on my food plots. We've got raccoons actively; uh, they're just active all day long. Um, you've got raccoons living out in the middle of the prairies, out in the middle of these cornfields that are. I mean, they're literally, literally a mile or a mile and a half or two miles away from a a riparian corridor. They're living in badger holes. They're living in old coyote dens. They're living in old culvert, just culverts that are under old, you know, county roads. But there's so much corn out there on the landscape. They just go out there and they forage. They've they've got food. So now where our crop rotation changes have shifted to we're no, we, we, we went from winter wheat. Now we're into corn. We were subsidizing our deer and turkeys in our winter wheat scenario we are now detri- at a detriment for our deer and turkeys, but we are subsidizing our raccoons. Couple with that, the fact that we are having easier winters now, warm winters that allow those raccoons to be active during the day. They're not actively, they're not out there doing wind sprints and, and going on marathons trying to lose weight. No, they're going out into the cornfields and they're sucking down corn kernels just like a deer would. And they're trying, they're laying on more fat. And they are the fattest little roly-poly, tiny little bears that you've ever seen. And the weather isn't harsh enough to drive them into long periods of torpor 
to where they're they're relying on utilizing their fat reserves. So a female gets pregnant, her fat reserves are so high, she gives birth to a full litter. She's able to provide just ample amount of milk for those kids. I mean, the, the, I, we are we are a raccoon production facility now. We can talk about pot, opossums. We can talk about skunks, but it's raccoons that you really notice that are that have literally exploded on the landscape due to the shift in agriculture that we have, and them exploiting this now new high of corn production on the landscape because because we are subsidizing raccoons and because now our cover on the landscape is more confined to linear corridors we have more predators in tighter spaces crammed in with deer and turkeys and everything else than we ever have before how in the world do turkeys have even a chance? Really. Between the coyotes, the bobcats, the raccoons, the skunks, the possums, the owls, the hawks. Like I said before, in a previous podcast, the number of Cooper's hawks we have out here now is crazy. I mean, there's Cooper's hawks everywhere. And Cooper's hawks love birds. Small pasture and birds to about the size of a quail. Mm, 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 mm. Tasty. So a 10-day turkey poult? <laughs> Can we say pheasant under glass? Turkey poult under glass? Thank you. Thank you, guys. This is the most delicious thing I've ever had. Yes. Tasty morsels. So this is where I devi- deviate <clears throat> from... A lot of the biologists that say, no, 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 it's habitat, habitat, habitat. It's not predator management. When you are in a landscape like ours, how do you propose to bring about a whole-scale shift in value sets for landowners to change their habitat management, their cover management. If they did, you could you could have that you could. So there was a federal program back in the day that uh, one of my other landowners. This is back when I was in Colorado. Still, he got money to fence off a riparian corridor to uh, for erosion and wildlife habitat. Federal government paid. I, I think they paid him a little bit of money, but then they paid him half. They basically paid for a, a bunch of the of the fencing material. And then they allowed him, it was a program to where he could graze it, you know, every third year or something like that from a management stand. It was a great program. He got a, a bunch of money and they paid for a bunch of the fence. And he put a fence with a buffer area around that riparian corridor in just the first year alone. <clears throat> the bird diversity, this was south of Lyman, Colorado, on um, Horse Creek, Horse Creek. And uh, it, was inf- it, was, it was incredible. 
It's incredible the bird diversity that, that they got in just the one year. Now, out there, they didn't have turkeys, but they did have uh, pronghorn. They did have some mule deer. Um, I'm sure they've got whitetails out there now. But without coming up with some massive federal program, without coming up with some statewide program, state program that has some money, how in the world do you change attitudes and values for cover management? Now, before you jump in and you're like, oh, well, we, we have pro, we, there's habitat partnership programs and there's, there's all, yes, yeah, 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 there are. Yeah, there are. But you need to get in bed, that landowner needs to get in bed with a state agency. Needs to get in bed with a federal agency. And there are a lot of people that are a little less than, shall we say they are they are less than inclined to hamstring themselves under some government bureaucracy that limits what they can or cannot do on their ground unless you're talking about a significant chunk of change, like a CRP program where you're getting, what, 40, 50 bucks an acre or whatever. I don't know. Because even if we sit there and we say, okay, we're going to fence off our riparian corridors and we're not going to graze them anymore. Okay, fine. But they're narrow. They're chock full of cheatgrass. They're chock full of of non-native weeds that are not beneficial. Even the snow, like for instance, I, I've got the one river bottom that I, I manage here. They used to run cattle into it, uh, in it, and they did it, it they never overgrazed it. They did a, it was a fairly benign grazing regime. But now that this new landowner owns it, there's been no cattle on it whatsoever. He got it right after the, the flood. Um, and it's now finally coming back to where we've got some great snowberry in there. We've got some great warm season grasses coming back in places. We've got some good cover. I mean, it's, it's actually decent. It's, it's bounced back now to where it's, it's looking good. I mean, we're, we're getting back to the native the way it's supposed to be, but we're still talking about linear corridors. We're still talking about tight corridors where scent traveling is not dissipating. It's easier Raccoons are going to course through those corridors. Coyotes are going to co- course through those corridors. They're going to smell those nests. They're going to smell those pole. They're, they're, they're going to be able to, to discover those turkeys at a much higher rate than what they used to do when turkeys were able to get out up into the open habitats out of these river, river corridors, creek corridors and just disappear on the landscape out there. Sure, would they be coming back to roost? Yes, they would. But they'd spend all day 500 to 800 yards out in the middle of these wide open areas. We don't have that. We don't have that. So agriculture was subsidizing our turkey population back then. What do we do now? Because there's very little we can do to manage our waste ground areas that are dominated by brome without spending a lot of money to try to go in there, time and money to go in there and convert that those areas out of brome and roll them into warm season grasses or some other, you know, whatever you want to do. Time and money from who? From whom? I know I'm doing it because I'm running a hunting operation and we're, we're utilizing 
some of the money that comes in for us, we split the money between the landowners and myself, and then a chunk of that money we have earmarked that goes back into doing habitat work. That's why this season sucks so bad. I shut down our turkey hunts. That was money that we were going to use to roll into some of our habitat work. We're just going to have to take it another year in the shorts on that. Or, or, or like I'm doing this year, change some of what we're doing and tighten the belts a little bit. But how do you, how do you in these type of, of environments, how do you sit there and say, oh, it's habitat. Okay, what are you going to do? What exactly are you going to do on the landscape that's dominated by brome, that's dominated by cheatgrass, that is susceptible to wind-blown, herbicide-resistant amaranth, spiny amaranth, which nothing really likes to do, velvet leaf, which, which provides no benefit for wildlife, really, not turkeys. Kosha that comes in so thick that even quail can't get through it. Hemp does. Hemp is, I don't have an actual problem with a lot of hemp areas. But is that what, is that what we're going to do is just convert everything into a, a big stands of hemp? Well, that because the understory on that ends up being cheatgrass, which does nothing. So in order for us to focus on habitat, it takes money and it takes a lot of it. I know that we've got some programs out there. But the programs come with all sorts of strings attached. And really, is the money in those programs worth the program for the landowner? Like like I said before, a buddy of mine, his, his, his statement, is the juice worth the squeeze? You've got to change a value set for these landowners to all of a sudden start valuing turkeys on the landscape more than any other possible management strategy for that piece of ground. They have to value turkeys so much that they'll actually be willing to spend money to manage for those turkeys. Or they have to value turkeys so much that they're willing to get in bed with a state agency or a federal agency to get a little money to sacrifice ground and pull it out of production. Until we have some national changes on our energy policy and, and we get fuel prices back under some reasonable sense of control or affordability, we our supply chain issues are resolved where we can actually get cheaper parts and parts to fix tractors. We can get barbed wire. We can get fence posts. We can get... When, when, when farming, when, when supply chain issues are resolved, when fuel prices come back down, when fertilizer prices come back down, when herbicide prices come back down, and commodity prices start going up to where there's a little bit of more free money for them to play with, I think then maybe you can start changing some attitudes. But, but until that, I don't know. I, I just, I don't see it. I don't see it. So when we're severely limited on what we can even do in our habitats to begin with. Or no, 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 no. Even if our native habitats were pristine and they were functioning the way they were supposed to be functioning, we would be severely limited on the overall turkey production that we could produce out in this landscape. Now, granted, I hear what you're saying. Well, maybe that's where you need to be 
and 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 you should be at a lower level. That's fine, except for the fact that the state agency wants to sell every freaking turkey hunter uh, tur- two turkey licenses they can, and they still let us come up here and, and shoot two birds per season. State agencies want the money. They want the reputation of having a place to come, the mecca uh, of the Midwest of where everybody wants to come and hunt turkeys and deer and everything, oh my, because Kansas is freaking awesome. Do they want to admit that they have a problem? Do they want to admit they say, okay, well, you know, we had a really good run there for about 10 years ago, but you know what? We were at artificial high, so we're going to slash our turkey tags by half from here on out because that's really where we should be from an ecological standpoint. So uh, thanks for every everybody, but uh, yeah, we're only going to sell half of the turkey tags from here on out. That's going to suck from a statewide budget, wouldn't it? So if we're limited on what we can do with habitat, the flip side has to be, in my opinion, has to be if we are subsidizing an artificially high, again, we were subsidizing an artificially high population of turkeys and deer. Okay, turkeys and deer make the state a lot of money. Turkeys and deer make a hell of a lot of secondary and tertiary money when sportsmen come into the state. Sportsmen spend dollars. Sportsmen go hunt, buy tags, buy groceries, pay for hotels, pay for outfitters and and land you know leases and landowners and whatever. All those great and glorious success stories of what why hunting is conservation and 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 why hunting is great and all the 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 force the 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 force multiplier of hunting on the land blah 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 yeah that comes with turkeys that comes with whitetails that even comes maybe a little bit with mule deer but it definitely for our area it comes with turkeys it comes with whitetails and it comes from pheasants there you go. We used to subsidize that through our, our our agriculture, and that made the state a lot of money, and it gave the state a hell of an awesome reputation. Now, we are subsidizing raccoons to the detriment of our deer and, tur- well, our turkeys for our raccoons. No one's coming to the state, no non-resident is coming to the state and buying five raccoon tags. Because we don't have five raccoon tags. If you want to come to the state and actually get a fur bearer license, you want to go trap or, or kill raccoons, it's going to cost you upwards of 400 and some odd dollars as a non-resident. Are you going to spend 400 and some odd dollars as a non-resident to come out here and whack the piss out of raccoons during the regular fur bearer season when there is no fur market to do anything with the fur bearer that you shoot or that you, that you trap? I'll answer that question right now because no one's doing it. No. Is it making money for the state? No, it is not. Is it a force multiplier that's helping communities? No, it's not. Our our change in the landscape has is subsidizing our and it, and again I'm not going to hound on it, but our outfitters, the other outfitters in our, in the area, and the fact that we can still and I say outfitters because largely that's who's running these larger corn piles. But when you've got people on the landscape just you know trying to you know turkey hunt, run turkey hunts, their their strategy is throw a bunch of corn out in front of a ground blind, just further exacerbates the turkeys with predation threats of just, you're subsidizing raccoons. I Something's got to give. At some point, I think there needs to be a discussion 
a different level of discussion surrounding nest predator, mesopredator, raccoon management. If we're subsidizing the art, artificially inflating that predator population, why can't we have a conversation in which can we just do something different? Can we have a different level of focus on raccoon management? If nothing else, just to get them at a lower level to where they themselves have a better chance on the landscape. Because at this point, the number of raccoons are so great on the landscape. When we, at some point, we are due for a distemper outbreak. Distemper is nasty. It's a nasty way to go. And the density and the just the sheer numbers of raccoons that we have in the landscape, if we get a, a, a strain of distemper that comes in and actually hits these guys, it's going to be catastrophic, absolutely catastrophic across all the predator and mesopredator uh, populations uh, regionally. Is is that how we responsibly manage? If, if we're if we're going to sit there and say we're conservationists, we're the reasonables, and the, the non-hunters are not, the anti-hunters are not, the animal activists they're not, they're not reasonable. They're whack jobs. They they don't they don't really care about the species. They don't really care about conservation. They don't really care about populations and dynamic. Really, we're going to sit there and we're going to look them dead in the eye and we're going to say, you know what, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to wait till distemper comes through and just nukes the ever living shit out of the population. What a brutal, nasty way to go. And just broad sweeping, just devastating across the entire landscape. There is a place for raccoons. There is a place for opossums and and skunks. I don't think of the densities that we have them at and the the abundance that we have them at. But there's a place on 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 the table for them. There should be a place for them. If we're, again... The whole thing about quality deer management and the, all these organizations, NWTF, NDA, Elk Foundation, everything else, all the stuff that we do as sportsmen for a turkey or we do for a deer or we do for an elk, the reason why we're noble, the reason why we're morally, we, we, are, we, are, we are great moral practitioners of conservation on the landscape is because what we do for one species benefits all species, more species. To be perfectly blunt, and I was just talking with a friend of mine who's, he's a, she is one of our vets. Yeah, by the way, Jep blew out his other ACL, so he's getting, he's slated for another TPL surgery. Ugh, sucks. But anyway, we were just talking. What was, sorry, I just blanked on there was a couple things we were talking about one was the strains of distemper she she had an interesting question on whether or not the last round of distemper that we had wiped out the bulk of the raccoons that we had and those that survived are they resistant to whatever strain went through before and is that why we are seeing this artificially high level of raccoons on the landscape as well as coyotes and, and other other predators as well do we have this now genetic um, resistance to the disease? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I, I, I don't have that answer. Um, but to, to, to what I was getting at before, even her as a vet, now she's got an agriculture background, so it's not like she grew up in, you know, downtown, you know, 
whatever doesn't matter some inner city and, and never you know only watched Animal Planet and Disney she thought the same thing she's like well at some point if we want to be perfectly blunt about it it's probably responsible for the population not only the population of raccoons but for turkeys other nest predator or or, or, not, or nesting species. I mean, it doesn't even have to be game species. Other just birds in general. It's responsible from a wildlife management standpoint, and especially a disease mitigation standpoint, to start shooting some, start shooting some of these raccoons in the head and dumping them in a ditch. And that is the that that's like the last thing any sportsman or any conservationist ever even wants to talk about. But at this point, what else do you do? There is no fur market. There is no fur market. Unless the state wants to, like South Dakota did, and, and, and pass a bounty and you want to pay somebody. But there is no fur market. And if you're going to talk about trapping raccoons in the winter and then stopping the trapping season in mid-February and then giving all the rest of the animals mid-February to mid-March to mid-April, two full months to equalize across the landscape, disperse up and down the river corridors, move back in, backfill in, fill in all these uh, you know vacated territories and everything. Basically equalize themselves on the landscape again where it doesn't even matter. What that What are we what are we going to do? I mean like something's got to give. We have to have a different level of discussion. It needs to be on the table. I just shared with you in the last podcast all the research that, you know, that just that one magazine was talking about short duration, high intensity, focused trapping efforts right around the reproductive, the critical reproductive period for raccoons, for other species, to give those target species, in this case, many of them non-game species, a leg up on being able to have a successful nest, get the little ones away from the nest, and then move into a situation where, okay, now the little ones have to survive. Absolutely. (coughs) But at least the nest was successful. I don't think we can all, I don't think we can sit there and say we're going to have a habitat solution. There's, out in this country, We don't have the native habitat to support what it used to support. We have to rely on agriculture as a part of that habitat puzzle piece or or, or mosaic. Now, that's going to take a shit ton of money and a whole scale change in landowner attitudes and state agency attitudes, hunter attitudes. It's... It's, it's going to require a change. Now, one of the things, and I'll end with this. One of the things that might bring about a change out here that I'm really, I'm cautious, I'm, I'm how do I want to put it? <coughs> Cautiously optimistic, hopeful. We have the ethanol plant here in Phillipsburg was just bought or just sold and bought by another company. That other company is going to turn this ethanol plant into a gluten ethanol plant. Meaning, 
Yeah, they're going to still run corn ethanol. But they are going to go massive scale on gluten, which means wheat, which means suddenly there's a local market for wheat and it's going to pay better than what the commodities market is paying. So now you may very well find a bunch of these farmers finding that it's profitable again to do large-scale wheat. I know one of my landowners is looking at it. Fingers crossed that takes off. Fingers crossed it does well and we have more landowners on this landscape that now find adequate profitability in going back to winter wheat production. Because then you have a free market economic incentive for landowners to choose a crop rotation that actually benefits the game species that benefits this state, this state agency, the local communities. And maybe, just maybe, we can move away from subsidizing so many raccoons that maybe, just maybe, our raccoon populations without disease can kind of come back a little bit more in some semblance of sanity on the landscape to where we can avoid a massive distemper outbreak. Or if we do get a distemper outbreak, it's not as devastating and nasty on the landscape. I don't know. But those are some of the things that go through my head out here on what's going on with our turkeys. You know, people say a death by a thousand cuts. Maybe this one's about four or five. I don't know, but they're, they're severe cuts. Each one in itself hurts. You start adding them up and then you're just, you're just chopped to bits. So for us, um, I'll tell you what we're going to do, and I hope other people follow suit. So I'm going to start changing our management focus away from focusing on deer. In the past, again, because of the winter wheat and everything else, you know, I I did not fully appreciate the 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 full comp. Uh, what about how do I want to say? It? I, I did not fully appreciate the full contribution of what winter wheat on the large scale winter wheat on the landscape was providing to all of our wildlife populations out here when I first started. Because when we started losing winter wheat on the landscape, I was focused on food, on that high quality forage that was being lost on the landscape. So that's when I went all in on, on, that's why I bought the Genesis. That's why I went in on the food plots. And we were really focused on cool season food plots, trying to get, trying to keep that winter wheat component on the landscape in pockets in strategic locations to where we would fill in the loss of that high quality, high palatability, high, you know, high protein food, you know, for seven to nine months out of the year. What I started to realize just how, how critical it was from a nesting standpoint and then, of course, there's been more conversations about brood habitat and nesting habitat and everything else. And, and it's awesome to have those conversations and listen to those conversations because it's good to get more and more research knowledge out there on the landscape. <clears throat> but what we started realizing was the stuff that we were doing for deer wasn't necessarily translating into really helping the turkeys as much as it could have 
if we switched the management focus and said, okay, we're going to start managing more for turkeys, food, yes, but nesting and brood habitat. Because nesting and brood habitat also benefits deer. And we've got corn on the landscape. I can put winter wheat plots where deer want to use them. That's, 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 not, a, that's not a big deal. That's easy. That's, that's easy. The issue is what are we going to do about the nesting habitat and the brood habitat, the cover? What, what can we do to change the amount of available high-quality cover that we have on the landscape that can be utilized by turkeys for nesting, utilized by turkeys for brood habitat, but will also then, by default, benefit deer fawning, deer bedding cover throughout the year, maybe forage, depending on what we put into it. <clears throat> so that's where we're switching. That's what I'm going to, I'm going to start switching to. I'm going to start focusing on deer less, start focusing on turkeys more because turkeys, you can, you, you can, you, you, you get a good season, good habitat out there. You get good nest success. And within two years, you can have your numbers just cranking again. Deer takes a little longer. Uh, but again, deer, deer benefit from turkey habitat development, whereas sometimes it's not directly relatable the other way around. But anyway, that's a different discussion for another time. But So that's what we're going to do, and that's literally what I'm doing now. Sat this weekend because I, I, I'm dead in the water. Like I said, my, both my machines are just, I think I said in the beginning, yeah, it's been late. I get it. It's, yeah, we're over a little three or three hours now. <clears throat> trying to get both machines back up and running so I can do stuff, but just going through and, and sitting with the guys. Um, I've used uh, green cover seed in the past last year. I like them. The guys are good. I, I They've got a lot of really good selection on a bunch of things, but since I've already worked with Star Seed here in Osborne and I've got some properties that I drive back and forth there and I'm, I'm going by there anyway, it's a little bit more convenient for me to utilize the folks at Star Seed. Uh, it's a little bit closer for me, given the fact that we're talking about $5.20 diesel and pulling trailers and everything else. Every dime matters. So I spent some time on their website and their cover mixes, and we put together some. I put together some custom blends that I think will be good for this summer. Uh, from a weed suppression standpoint, it'll provide some good bedding cover for deer later on. It, it you know, it's, it's going to be good habitat for this summer into early fall. And then as we roll into early fall, I can take a look at some of those areas, figure out if I want to terminate some and turn them into to food plots, or if I just leave everything alone. Just just leave it, allow that stubble to stay there, and then just get a leg up for hopefully next year and see see how we can start moving the needle. And then there's some other bigger projects that we're doing that are just converting massive chunks of real estate into nothing but wildlife cover, um, brood habitat, nesting habitat, that type of stuff. So... Yeah, it's gonna be an interesting. It's gonna be an interesting next couple weeks and months. I'm like, like I just need to get those machines back up and running. Otherwise, it's just gonna suck. Ugh. Anyway, alrighty. If you have any questions, again, I know that not all of these things are going to translate into your area and what you're seeing. Um, some of them might, um, and maybe some of them will just spark another realization in your head. You'd be like, oh, wait a minute, I'm also seeing this here, and I'm also seeing this here, and what we're doing here is this. Again, I think it's. I think there's a, a a bunch of different little things that are whittling away at our populations, and I think it's not going to be just one thing that tackles it. 
I am one of those people that thinks that predator management ought to be on the table. Legitimately, from a, from a professional standpoint, biologists, researchers talking about what they've seen and wildlife services talking about what they've seen, what they've seen work, how did, how did they get it to work, what was necessary for it to work, and guide hunters and sportsmen and just landowners in general into short duration, high intensity, nest season targeted management efforts on some of these measles predators and predators in general um, to see if we can't move the needle on some of our nest success, if not just for the benefit of the overall population of those predators and measles predators. So, anyway. Um, yeah, that's good enough. If you got any questions, let me know. As always, thanks. I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate all the feedback. I love all the comments and, and the, the, the chit-chat during the week. So keep it coming. Um, share this with everybody. If, if you think it's valuable, uh, you think it's worth their time, please definitely share it. If you haven't already, go and, and give us a, give me an honest, an honest uh, review on wherever you're consuming your podcast. Um. Yeah, I'll, I'll save that. There was a, there was a forum in which I was mentioned before about me being long winded. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's old news, bud. That's that's old news. That's baked into the cake with me. I know I'm long winded. I don't want to be long winded, and yet here I am at three hours and how many other minutes? So, yeah, trust me, we all know. We all know. But uh, anyway. There you go. That's my thoughts on why our turkeys are, are taken in the shorts up here. Uh, what I think we need to have happen on the landscape if we're going to see a change. And uh, if you disagree with me, by all means, let me know. Let me know what you think, what you're seeing out here. If you do agree or if you got some other stuff, by all means, again, chime in. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know what you're, what you're seeing. And uh, maybe, maybe, just maybe we can get some state agencies to, to I mean, not... Okay, let me just say, there's some state agencies that are kicking butt, and they're they're taking it seriously, and they're they're tackling things. I just really wish mine apparently was one of them, but it just doesn't seem like it is. But not yet, anyway. But we'll see. Fingers crossed. Maybe we'll 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 get something going. But anyway, alrighty. Uh, I'll keep you posted through Instagram on some other stuff that I'm doing this week. But uh, until next week, you guys uh, stay safe. Thanks for listening, and thanks for listening. And uh, chat with you soon. Bye.